Coming up next, The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy. Every Thursday from 4pm, right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Welcome to The Crunch on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host, Cam Slater, and this is the place we crunch the political issues and cut through all the politicians' spin. We have another interesting show ahead for you this week. My first guest this afternoon is Erica Harvey, the New Zealand first candidate for Tauranga and one of the three freedom candidates with winnable list positions. We'll be discussing what has driven her to stand up and be counted in this election. And then I'll be talking with political historian Dr. Michael Bassett about his views on the current state of play in New Zealand politics. I'll be sure to ask him to rate the current government against all others. And it'll certainly be interesting to hear his views through a historian's lens. And finally, I have a chat with my buddies about what they think about all the media fuss over national so-called fiscal hole regarding their tax cut plans. We're in the last four weeks of the election campaign, and things are getting very, very interesting with all the polls showing a complete bloodbath for Labour. But could we be heading for an overhang situation where Labour wins more electorates than their party vote entitles them to? It's all over by the shouting and the inevitable recriminations for the many minor parties out there that simply do not have the grunt to make the 5% MMP threshold. How much wasted vote will there be? Or will the voters fall in behind the parties that are going to make the 5% threshold? Don't forget to send your comments to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. 
right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Today, I'm going to crunch deep into an issue that's been bubbling beneath the surface of New Zealand's political landscape, the media's role in shaping our political process. Now, I've got an article here by Michael Bassett, who's raising some compelling points about the state of our media and their involvement in politics. And I'll be talking to him shortly about this and a little bit of history. But Bassett basically argues that both Labour ministers and our left-leading media should be more knowledgeable about New Zealand's political history before giving excessive publicity to National's tax plans. He cites an example from 1928, when the government and the media's focus on the opposition's mistakes led to the election of a frail, half-blind Sir Joseph Ward. And Ward's election was marked by a campaign blunder in which he promised to borrow £70 million next year instead of over 10 years. And this extravagant promise, driven by media criticism, resonated with voters looking for some extra cash, and Ward was elected. But the money was never borrowed, and he passed away within two years. So here's the intriguing part. Bassett suggests that the current media frenzy around National's tax cut promise might be backfiring. And as the media relentlessly scrutinizes the plan, National's popularity is rising in the polls, making it more likely that they'll take office with Act's assistance on October 14. Bassett accuses the media, including TV1, TV3, and various print outlets, of working hard to undermine National and Act. Of course, Michael Bassett's a big fan of the Act Party, and I'm no fan of the National Party, but these are facts. He mentions journalists trawling through old ACT emails in search of past mistakes by candidates. However, he argues that this effect is actually futile and suggests that media outlets should focus on explaining how a potential coalition of Labour, the Greens and the Maori Party would work if they secure the numbers. The Maori Party's goal is to close all prisons by 2040, despite higher Maori crime rates and raises questions about their approach to law enforcement. And Michael Bassett calls for clarity from Chris Hipkins and the Greens on whether they support such proposals and how they plan to collaborate with these policies. And furthermore, Bassett believes that the media could play a more positive role by investigating the origins of party policies and their potential implications for coalition partners. He encourages the media to delve into alternative solutions rather than merely attacking a few policy advocates. We've seen all that before, haven't we, with the Parliament protests. And this is why I've described the media in the past as the media party. Now, a survey of journalists in New Zealand showed just how left-wing journalists are, with just 15% claiming to be right of centre and a massive 85% identifying as left of centre. And this is in stark contrast to how the New Zealand public thinks. A 2020 election survey by Auckland University found that 28% of respondents identified as left of centre and 43% as right of centre. So our journalists in the mainstream media are very unrepresentative of New Zealand in terms of political views. New Zealand journalists are also far more likely to hold extreme left views. 
20% of journalists said their political views were hard or extreme left, which compares to 6% of adults in New Zealand. On the other side of the spectrum, only 1% said their political views were hard or extreme right, compared to 10% of the adult population. And in the last few years, we've also had the $55 million public interest journalism fund and another $50 million that was pumped into the media as well. None of that takes into account the millions upon millions in advertising funding that's been poured into the media outlets as well. Now, the Public Interest Journalism Fund in no way requires journalists to report favorably on the government, but it does require journalism recipients to subscribe to the government's views on the Treaty of Waitangi, which means that debate on the hugely important issue of the role of the Treaty of Waitangi is almost entirely absent from most of the New Zealand media. And I'd argue that the PIJF was and continues to be a corrupting influence on the New Zealand media. And that's why here at RCR, we don't take a cent from the government, not that they give us any in any case. Now, David Farah's Courier polled in March 2022 and found that 59% of New Zealanders believed government funding of private media companies undermines the independence of media. And that view was shared by people across the political spectrum by a majority of National Enact voters and a plurality of Labour and Green voters. The same poll found only 24% of New Zealanders supported the Public Interest Journalism Fund. And this partly explains why trust in media is so low in New Zealand. A poll late last year by Dinata found that only 30% trust the media. And I suspect it'll be dropping unless the media industry recognises that it has a problem. To many New Zealanders, the media are not seen as disinterested reporters. They are seen as employees of companies with ideological agendas who not only don't understand New Zealanders who are not left-leaning, but show active hostility towards them. The media continue to insert themselves into the political debate rather than report the news and facts. And we've seen a continuation of gotcha politics that we here at Reality Check Radio refuse to get into. And if anyone here did that, then you'd stop listening. And of all our hosts, I'm the one most likely to have dabbled in gotcha politics, but there's no need to do any of that. Actually conversing and discussing ideas from across the spectrum is what we're about. Letting guests talk so that you can hear what they have to say without the host dominating the conversation. Now, no one's perfect, but at least we're giving it a go. And if only the other media would do the same. Right now, though, the phone is off the hook for the Labour Party, arguably the worst government in living memory. And I'll discuss this with Michael Bassett shortly. But in conclusion, Bassett suggests the media campaigns may inadvertently lead more people to vote against the present government. And he acknowledges that this might not be a bad thing, but he questions whether the media is doing an effective job in informing the public, especially considering that their salaries are primarily funded by the very same public. And as we head into this upcoming election, it's crucial for us all to consider the role of the media in shaping our political landscape. Are they truly serving as the watchdogs of democracy, 
or are they sometimes inadvertently influencing outcomes in unexpected ways? That's why our mission here at Reality Check Radio is so very important and why we've put a page together of all our political content so that you can be better informed. You can find it at realitycheck.radio forward slash election 2023. Now, I hope this conversation has given you some food for thought. And remember, informed citizens are the cornerstone of a healthy democracy. Thank you for tuning into The Crunch for our in-depth discussions on these issues that mattered most to you. Stay informed, stay engaged, and stay tuned. Erica Harvey is a well-known community advocate and business owner in Tauranga. With a background in corporate sales and marketing, Erica has transferred that skill set into community advocacy. And Erica has also been on various community boards and working groups, including with the Tauranga City Council and the Bay of Plenty District Health Board. An American-born New Zealander, Erica has made Tauranga her home for almost 15 years, and now she's standing for Parliament for New Zealand First. She joins me now. Welcome to The Crunch, Erica. Hey, thanks for having me. No problem at all. You're standing in Tauranga electorate for New Zealand First this election? I am. Now, you've got a bit of a profile in that electorate. You're also following on from a former MP of that electorate, uh, being the leader of your own party, Winston Peters. It's a big shoes to fill. It is. It is indeed. But quite a privilege, really. Um, I was in 2020 as well. And in your previous life, you've actually been a councillor for the Tauranga City Council until the commissioners were appointed. Isn't that right? No, it was a lucky break. I ran in that election. Yeah. And I lost um, <laughs> by a small <laughs> majority. So I guess someone was looking after me. And so then, yeah, everyone else got in, not me. And um, I got to watch as all of that unfolded. And now we absolutely have commissioners in. And um, yeah, it's been an interesting, that was kind of my my first start into politics really was, well, I mean, you might want to ask me that question, but. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. It, it yeah. was your start into politics. You found you liked it? No, not at all. Um, I That's actually... a good answer because we don't <laughs> want people who like politics going into parliament. We want people who yeah. dislike it, get in, do something and go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's exactly how I found myself here. I was fighting a local issue on behalf of 25 small businesses. Um, I tried to open dialogue with the Tauranga City Council at the time. Uh, it started in around 2016. And coming from a corporate background, I thought it would be quite easy. I mean, it was clear that this um, development project was, uh, needless to say, it was filled with a number of issues. And so I brought those issues to council because if it went ahead, I felt that it would be at a cost to ratepayers. Um, I thought I was in a proper process. Long story short, after about, I don't know, many, many meetings, I would say close to 90, <laughs> I realized that I was just having meetings and I was in this process. And I also couldn't find a complaint policy to understand how to even complain about the process I was in because of the amount of bureaucracy. And I thought, we had to hire um, a private consultant. I couldn't get a lawyer to represent us in all of these small businesses. They all said that there was a conflict of interest because it was a city council. And long story short, about five years or five years into it, I just thought, how much is it to run in an election? <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
yeah, it was it was much cheaper than the consultant that I had. So I just signed up and thought, you know what, stuff it all, you know, I'll just I'll run in an election, see if maybe then they'll listen. And they did. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the thing that I've found in politics is you can get it stuck into the cycle and, and it's it's designed to demoralize you. And the the staff at the councils or or indeed the civil servants, uh, they just like to have meetings. They like to have hui. They like to uh, talk a lot, but do very little. And you yeah. often need to find a way that you can threaten their jobs or threaten their power or threaten their position. And often, like you've found, standing really sharpens the focus and cuts through all the BS. Yeah. And I learned so much. I mean, I actually even had a, I think like most people when you're not involved in politics and I, and I never really was, I mean, I voted national because, well, I, you know, worked Same in as me. And, Same as me. That's what you, you know, did. Yeah. I was part of the national party. So I was a, a member of theirs. And when all these issues happened, the first party I went to was the national party. I thought, this development was affecting Tauranga locally. Um, I think it was over $230 million were being pushed out of our local economy. So I went to, at the time, you know, Simon Bridges and and it just, it was clear that um, nobody was really interested and that there were other things at play that were beyond the public's knowledge at that time. Yeah. And um, and that's actually how I found myself walking into New Zealand first. I mean, that's the the whole journey was crazy. It was just me by myself trying to represent all of these businesses who were, you know, fishermen and they weren't, they didn't capture things in emails. They, um, you know, they, so I just thought, oh, look, I'll help you guys. This will be pretty easy. It's pretty obvious what's wrong. And we also had um, a business there. So, and the reason we started that business was because our daughter had autism. And so I had left my corporate job. And I mean, this entire thing was about to put us out of business. We were about to lose our house that we had just bought. And so you fight really hard. And I think that's when you become interested in politics. Like you only become, from my experience, you become interested in politics when decisions made by other people directly affect your life or someone that you care about. And I think that's also why this election is so important because 2020, 2021 affected everyone's lives differently. Mm. And, um, you know, I just had a baby in May. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I wasn't going to run this election. And I just said to my husband, the country, <laughs> like, I, there's no way I can sit by the sidelines and not be part of this because we have to take back our country. You know, I'm, I'm very worried for it. And even the way that I've seen how government, they don't listen to community. And it is really sad that you have to go way out of your comfort zone and run in a political campaign for then to finally listen and say, oh, wait, wait, wait. And I remember sitting with the deputy mayor at the time mm. who I had emailed and met with, tried to meet with a number of times and had met with. And when I was running for council, I sat down with him with all of these documents that I had done and I showed him, how can this go forward? Like, this is crazy. There was no due diligence. There, there was a memorandum that went out, which actually was untrue. Like, how does this happen? Yeah. And he looked at the thing and he just said, well, you're right. This is pretty bad. You told me about this. Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, and as I met with them, no one seemed to even remember. And here I was spending four years of my life having all these meetings and nobody even knew who I was. And then the next thing I heard 
where they were starting to badmouth me and saying, making up all of these crazy lies um, mm. so that nobody would engage in dialogue with me. It was demoralizing. It was it was such a crazy experience that, you know, I guess when you feel like you've got nothing left and we were about to lose our house and everything and I'm seeing it happen over and over, you just sometimes you just have to stand up and you can't really complain unless you're prepared to do something about it. Isn't that a problem in New Zealand society these days where there's a lot of people that go along to get along and they won't say anything? I mean, I'll give you an example. Yeah. Uh, where I live in Takapuna, the other night there was a whole lot of people putting out road cones, blocking a main road. Uh, I went down and said, look, you know, what are you doing? It's like 10 o'clock at night. It's We can hear it. We're in the apartment building up above. What are you doing? Oh, well, we're putting in a red stripe on the road. What? I said, why? Oh, well, because it's going to be a 30-kilometre-an-hour zone um, when you're heading in towards Takapuna. I said, but who asked for that? I said, oh, we don't know, mate. We're just doing it. So two nights they've put out this big red stripe across the road, and then they've let cars drive over it for for a week, and then they came back the other night and they put the thirty kilometer uh, marking on on the road. Of course, everyone's ignoring it. Of course. But who decided this was a good idea? Who said that we should take up half of a lane for cycleways? Who decided these things? Uh, cycleways. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it sounds like that's exactly, that's exactly what you've experienced. Something was happening. Yeah, in, in the council, no one knew how it had come about, and nope. everyone was just letting it happen. Except yeah. you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, it was sad because as I was meeting with people, saying you guys have to start, and and I met so many people who had given up because that's what they do—they waste your time. Where you mean you have to work, you have a family, you have so many other. Everybody has mm. so many other obligations and priorities. I mean, who's got time to keep following up with the council like 95 times and have 95 meetings that do nothing except for put you in a circle and you're watching the entire development that you're trying to talk about continue to be built? It's it's crazy. And then if you do a, a Lagoima request, uh, if it's local body, but an Official Information Act request, or even better is a Privacy Act request and find out what they've been saying about you. Then you, yeah. find, then you find out that there's some pretty scurrilous people that are in working working for us. We pay their rates. We pay the taxes. Say, yep. And do you know what? The minute you ask for that, <laughs> which I encourage people to do, um, it drastically changes the way that they act <laughs> towards you. And I would say it stopped pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I did that with the police. I did a a privacy act request to find out how many police officers had accessed my NIA intelligence file. It came back and it was something like 450 police over oh nine God. nine months had accessed my file. There's no justification for that. You did uh, my privacy all, request game. Yeah. So, <laughs> so like, but but you know what? It stopped. It stopped as soon as I put that request in. And now uh, I find that my communications with police are much more convivial because they know that I won't lie down. They know that I'll make a ruckus. They know that I'll make their life a living hell if they keep doing it. And yeah. and that's kind of what I'm hearing that you've been doing. You've been making these council uh, officials take notice. 
Yeah, exactly. And I just, I found the entire process so interesting, I guess I could say, is that we pay counsel out of our rights and you would think, and they have all these things about engagement, but the engagement process is really like a tick in the box where they'll say, oh, look, we're engaging with the community. Here are three plans. Which one do you like? They, they, love, the thinking, word, they love the word stakeholders though, don't they? Oh, yeah, we, they don't say we're engaging with the community. We're engaging with, engaging stakes, with stakeholders. stakeholders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm always thinking like, well, what if there's a fourth or how come we didn't co-design this with the community or you know, I come from like tech and innovation and you mm. the best way you can design anything amazing is to have all sorts of people around that table and help design it. And you get some incredible ideas. You can sit and toy with things. And I think this should be done more in a community. I mean, people are so turned off by politics because they feel that they're not listened to. And I mean, you can look around and see why they feel that way, you know? Yeah. I mean, there was thousands of people at Parliament asking to be listened to, and the politicians all shrugged and said, yeah, nah, not you. I it- found that so bizarre because, you know, I remember we were sitting here watching it, and I had said to my husband, I'm going to go down there. I, I said, because I've seen it when we ran, and when we ran in that election in 2020, it was so interesting to watch the media and how they covered stories about Winston and New Zealand first. Mm. And you just, you know, we I, we would sit there and be like, we would have an amazing meeting and I'll go, there's no way the media could manipulate this meeting. We would watch the news and they would focus on some guy with a potato that <laughs> said something random. And that was the headline. It wasn't yeah. the policies we were talking about. It wasn't the people. That's all it was. This man with, you know, whatever. Um, so people don't actually get a true reflection. So as I was watching the news, you know, I had said to my husband, this whole thing, uh, and I don't mind what people do. You know what I mean? Like, mm. and I mean that in every sense of the word, I don't care what people do in their bedrooms. I don't care what people put in their bodies, but what I do care about is people being able to have a choice and mm. actually people being listened to. Yep. And you know what? There's so many people I don't agree with, but I tell you what, I'll sit around the table and I'll hear them out. And a lot of times, almost nine times out of 10, I'll actually learn something from that conversation that I didn't know before. And so I think there's a lot of power in that. So I went down there and had, and I remember sitting in the Kamatua tent and I was chatting with them Mm. and I was trying to see if I could somehow help dialogue (laughs) uh, happen because I knew, you know, I had some friends that worked in parliament and I was, you know, and, and I was getting messages from people I knew that said, we really want to talk, but we're not allowed, (laughs) you know, and I just thought this is crazy. And it was so, you know, I tell you what, I actually really enjoyed it down there. It was the one time I have felt in, in, especially in the past few years, as we've seen all of the co-governance and all of these racist and separatist type, you know, policies be pushed through on those grounds during that time, it didn't matter where you come yeah. from, where you lived, what you believed, if you were vaccinated, if you weren't vaccinated. Everyone was just there, just enjoying being together because we weren't allowed to do that. And um, and it was I actually it's one of the things I'm so happy that I went down to. And, you know, when Winston came down and, you know, we were there walking through the crowds and stuff. I mean, they can say what they want for the reasons that he was there, but he was truly there. And I can say that because I had spent four days down there. Because we recognized that what happens to us in the media was what was happening down there. And he was so angry that nobody was going down to listen to them. And so even though we weren't in parliament, 
and didn't have any power at that time mm. um, or influence, you know, he went down. And I actually, I really respect him for that. And we heard so many stories down there of people who had been injured. And, you know, it just, it took me back to those times at the council where you have this huge issue and no one's listening. And then people just start making up things and, you know, you become like the, the brunt of a joke, you know, yeah. it's, it's unfair. You know, it's totally unfair. The thing that impressed me about when Winston went to the protest was that the media were hounding him uh, through the walkthrough. And he kept saying to them, I'm not talking to you. I'm here to listen to these people. Yeah. He, did, he didn't stand on a stage and, and grandstand. He didn't uh, make a speech. He didn't do any of that. He just walked, talked, and listened. And that's all that those people wanted to hear. That's what they wanted. I mean, I went down there for a few days as well. Yeah. And the thing that I saw was in stark contrast to what the media had told us. Sure, there was a whole lot of people living there in tents and things like that, but there wasn't a speck of rubbish on the ground. No. There wasn't any violence. No. Nope. If anybody was doing something silly, there'd be four or five people that would say, you know, you need to dial that back a bit. Or they'd say, if you dropped a piece of rubbish, they'd say, oh, mate, could you pick that up? There's some bins over there. There were people yeah. that were organizing and doing things out of the goodness of their heart. And yeah. the media sat up there in the parliament buildings and the politicians sat with the media and smeared and defamed and ridiculed people who were desperate. They had lost their jobs, their families, uh, their careers, their businesses, and yeah. these people were laughing. You know, And then you had Michael Wood say that it was a river of filth. You know? Oh, and how dare the prime minister say that there was a choice? How is the choice to say you do this or you lose your home and you can't feed your family? That is not a choice. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's coercion. That's I mean, this this will go down in history as one of the moments that I think everyone will hope we never, ever see again. And that's why I think we have to have new representation in government. I mean, mm. really, you have to like to have a one source of truth. Since when is it not OK to hear all sides of something? That's actually when you make bad decisions is when you if I sat in a room with a bunch of people just like me, it would be a great conversation because I would agree with everything. Yeah. But I tell you what, it wouldn't be as amazing if I, say, I sat down with four other people who were very different to me to actually go, well, what if this and what if that and to push and ask questions? I mean. That's actually what a, I believe makes a true democracy is actually trying to understand all points of views. And you're not always going to agree, but to sit down and actually come up with some sort of dialogue or some sort of solution that is representative of, you know, and you might not get everything you want, you know. No, you, but can, never you, get to, every, you can never get everything you want. But if you're, if you're not talking and listening, you know, yeah. and look, I, I've, I've come up through sales, so you were probably taught the same thing I was. You've got two ears and one mouth, and that's the ratio God intended them to be used. Exactly. <laughs> you know? exactly. <laughs> no sales rep ever gets anywhere if they don't listen to the, what their client or what their customer or potential customer wants and meeting those needs. And politicians are no different. And you know that's one of the things that, that I used to say to politicians. They'd come to me and they'd say, um, you know, I need some training to be a politician. I said, well, can you sell? 
Yeah. <laughs> and they go, uh, what do you mean? I said, well, have you ever sold anything? Have you done sales? No. Right. Well, I suggest you go listen to Brian Tracy. Go and listen to Brian Tracy's um, courses that he's got. It's, it's very cost effective, very effective. But if you listen to those, then you'll have everything that you need to know to be an effective politician. Yeah. And, and do you know how many of them have done that? Uh, not, zero. Not one. Yeah. Yeah. Not one. <laughs> Do you know what was interesting is um, when I was representing the, these, this marine industry, I don't actually have a marine background, right? Mm. But I was sitting in these meetings and people, I think, thought that I like worked in the marine industry my whole life. But all I was saying was taking what I was listening to mm. all of these other people say of why everything was dangerous and re-communicating it in a way that people who make decisions can understand. And that to me is what a politician is really. And, you know, I would have said it at the time I was an advocate because um, that's what I was. But I think a good politician is a good advocate and you should be able to listen, take in information and then figure out how you have to re, you know, resell, I guess, mm. that to the people you need to so that they understand the impacts of the decisions being made. Why isn't that happening? <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think politicians should be more facilitators. Unfortunately, they've become more like dictators. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it's their way or the highway. There may be common ground on any issue. And, you know, I was talking to Chris Trotter and Matt McCartan. They're people that are not from my side of politics. Uh, but I talk to them because... Sometimes they have good ideas, and sometimes my good ideas, they'll pick up as well, but we can only do this if we keep the discourse. And I see that the, the major problem that we have in New Zealand politics today is polarization and the inability Absolutely. to talk. You know, Winston comes out and says, you know, Maori aren't indigenous, a statement of fact, basically. Uh, the, their own oral history says that. And all of a sudden, we have the media shrieking that he's racist. The guy's yeah. Maori. Did they not notice that he's Maori? That and he's, he's from... delivered so many amazing initiatives to Maori, you know? But the other thing is, he's had that position forever. As long as I've known him, exactly. and he's been in politics, you know, for 40-odd years, he's had that position. Why was this suddenly a surprise? I, I, I mean, I just don't get it. I feel like with Winston... He's had the same, I mean, he's been the same. And then you're like, oh, oh my God. And it's like, what? <laughs> we said this last year. <laughs> we said this the year before that. <laughs> this is actually, and I think the interesting thing that's come up to me at the moment is around people confusing. Actually, one of the most dangerous things we have right now, I believe in politics, is that we are voting based on people or based on almost like, it's almost like gang colors. Like, you know, you vote blue, you mm -hmm. go blue, you vote red, you go red. Yep. And you'll hear people say, we only have two choices, blue or red, but we don't. The only reason we have two choices is because nobody opens up their mind to go, actually, we're tired of the two choices. We actually need more choice, you know, because I do believe that we need to bring different types of parties into this political landscape because you, you know, you start to just hear yourself. And I think there's so many great ideas out there and so many different people who can add a lot of value to politics. I would, I would really encourage people to, you know, expand their mind and read policies. I mean, some of the, for example, you know, depending on how you feel about selling off New Zealand's assets, mm. I mean, 
people should probably read act policies. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of things going up for sale. <laughs> that's um, right. You know, but nobody seems, I said that to someone today, like, oh, what? Well, no, he's against co-governance. I was like, well, so are we. <laughs> Do you know? It's in, it's in the fine details of the policies that we're putting through. Um, some people say, what's the difference between, you know, you and them? And the difference is, read our policies. We're very different parties. Do yeah. you know what I mean? I mean, that's, and that's the thing, you know, I've, I've been talking to Winston for years and years and years you know, when he was in the National Party uh, and when he was later in New Zealand First. Mm. And, you know, we've had our differences in the past. You know, I, I've, I wrote some terrible things about him in the past, but Winston just shrugs and laughs and says, well, that's just politics. Mm. But you're right. There used to be a time when politics and political parties issued manifestos. Yeah. And in those manifestos, that was what they stood for. Now they don't issue manifestos. They make bold promises. The media doesn't actually dig into them very far at all. Uh, and in a few New Zealand First or or even some of the freedom parties, the media don't even report anything that you've got to say because for them, I think they just like the status quo of swapping between red and blue. But in reality, both of those parties have got a tissue thin difference between the two of them. It's just yeah. a, it's just a method of execution that's different. They are different sides of the same coin. And if we keep flipping that coin, we're going to keep getting the same stuff. Yeah. And that's, that's why I want to see some of these minor parties uh, start to do well in the electorate. I want to see a weakened major party. I want to see either the Labour Party or the National Party weakened and have to rely on a, a larger, say, New Zealand First or ACT in this election um, in coming years, maybe a, a stronger Green Party. Who knows, right? But yeah. But we need to start listening to the smaller parties and stop flip-flopping from blue to red and back again. Because what have we got from that? They say red and blue, nothing new. <laughs> <laughs> I keep hearing that. <laughs> and, you know, the other thing I found confusing. So I so obviously ran in that local body election, um, missed a little bit, and then was obviously approached by New Zealand First to run in Turang in 2020. And now in that campaign, the... The craziest part was when you go up to debate and you're debating someone in the coalition you were just in yeah. because most people, and, and that's because people don't have time to pay attention to politics, right? Um, to So we stand up and now we've just, like we've had a successful, you know, coalition government 2017 to 2020. Yeah. Now we're campaigning in 2020 and everyone is so confused at whose policies are what, because both myself and labor are saying the same wins. We're both talking about the same wins and people assume because the labor party is bigger that a lot of these policies were labor's, mm. but they were ours. And so I think that's also a factor is that we need to be able to educate the public and maybe it's color coding. So maybe it's that at the end of each coalition, you've got color coded things. People go, Oh, that was a New Zealand first policy. Oh, you know, and then they can understand actually whose policies are what, because people mm. get confused. The other thing is that the wasted vote conversation, how many people do not understand that concept? And oh, that it's a huge number. I mean, we've, we've been trying to educate people about this at, at reality check radio, and you can talk to your blue in the face on the facts of how wasted votes work. Right. Yeah. But I'll still argue with you and say, 
well, that's not fair. Well, well, those are the rules. They've been the rules for 30 years. Every election, there's parties that don't make it into parliament and yeah. the seats that they that they might have won if they had won an electorate seat or if they had met the 5% threshold, they get reallocated to the winning parties. And that's anyone who got over 5%. And, you know, in 2020, that meant that Labour got five extra seats, National got two extra seats. New Zealand First uh, didn't get any. The Greens and the Maori Party ended up with one extra themselves. Yeah. Is that right. what you is that what you intended when you voted for that small party that didn't make the threshold? Because I bet it's not. Exactly. And I'm looking at minority parties right now who are trying to still persuade people to vote for their party even though they don't even have enough candidates, even if they got over 5%. I mean, that's just actually manipulating the public to a wasted vote. That's actually going to go against exactly what they are voting for. You know, which is what I've been saying. You need to pick a party that looks like they're going to make it. And, you know, and I've spoken to... I'll tell you what, we're going to make it, Cam. I can see that, <laughs> right? I already know that. I've been watching politics all my life and I can tell. So what's we... your, what's your, let's, let's take a wage. What do you think we're going to hit? What's your guess? I think uh, I think that New Zealand First is going to surprise a few people, yeah. and and I'm picking somewhere between eight and eleven percent. I'm going to eight percent. You're in Parliament. Well, then we better get at least eight. <laughs> at nine percent, Kirsten Murphy makes it to Parliament. That's true. I'd like right. to get thirteen percent. We yeah. had so the biggest. When I was looking back at um, New Zealand First, we've you know we've hit thirteen percent before. Yeah, ninety Yeah, that's my goal. I'd like to see us hit over 13%. I'd like to have this be the best election we have ever had, and I'd like Winston to make one heck of a comeback. Well, you know, re reality is you know, everyone criticizes Winston Peters and he'd say he never delivers anything. Just name, I had one person <laughs> on my website say, name one thing that Winston Peters has ever delivered. You could name and a I, bunch. I, I, I said, oh. Only one. Awesome. I'll win that bet. <laughs> Super gold card. Yeah. Bam. Exactly. That's it, right? But then, you know, I watched the debate on Tuesday night with Chris Hipkins and uh, and Christopher Luxon, and there was Hipkins claiming that the 1800 new police was a Labour uh, win, you know, and everyone knows that it was Winston that forced first. that through. Exactly. <laughs> you know, new Zealand first put that yep. through. But there, there was Chris Hipkins saying that our streets are safer because of the 1800. But then in the next breath, we hear that for every nine police officers, there's 10 gang members, right? So yep. so, so 1800 was a good start. And we, we probably need to add, actually add something like 3000 police. You know? I agree. Absolutely. And you know, so where I, so in Tauranga, we've had, the crime has gone crazy as it has everywhere. You've got ram raids, the crime we we're seeing here has been so, I don't even know the word for it because it's actually terrifying because they're coming into our homes while we are home and asleep. And I won't say how they're doing it, but we've, we've figured it out because I wound up having a community meeting after all these break-ins were happening and police weren't able to come and take any reports because they were so short-staffed that um, me and another woman in my, in my um, neighborhood who I'd never met. I just read her story on like a, a Facebook group about how she was watching stranger things on her bed and with her, her head, um, her ear pods in. 
and a man with a flashlight on his head was coming down the hallway. Could you imagine this right now? You're watching Stranger Things and there's a headlamp in your hallway and it's middle of the night in a rainstorm. So she winds up, obviously, there's a man, he's broken into her house, he acts, you know, confused. Um, and so I was like, this is crazy. So since I had run in that um, elections before, I thought, well, why don't we just hold a public meeting? Because this is getting out of hand. Mm. We put together this public meeting and the stories that were coming from people in my neighborhood, and I never heard about any of this in the media, mm. were terrifying. An old woman was saying she was probably in her 80s, went to sleep with her phone by her bed woke up and her phone was gone. And then she found out she'd been robbed. She was asleep. Like how terrifying is that? So anyway, I started a WhatsApp chat um, and it just kind of happened organically. I just thought maybe we'll just get, it kind of got connected and it's grown. And I actually think right now with the issues that we're facing, I was saying to someone else, we wait for government to do a lot of things, but do you know what else? We actually have to start moving communities to start solving some of these problems too. We don't have time to wait you know, and we've seen that in other types of issues as well. You can, you could be waiting forever. The only way we can really start to help one another and really start to fix this country, it's going to be an all hands on deck approach. I mean, we all have to be working towards something, not just politicians, not just community. We have to be doing it together. And there's some really good solutions that we can come up with, you know, just like, just like that. I mean, we've seen the um, crime still happening, obviously, but now we're all connected. I mean, someone's home alone and hears something they'll just message in that chat group and you've got about 50 people that will come and just make sure you're okay you know no that 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 works you know i've got a lot of friends in the rural communities and you know down raglan coffee away they know that if they call the police for something could be somebody poaching so it could be somebody stealing a sheep whatever they know that the police either won't come yeah or it'll take them over an hour to get there and on some of these back roads, there's one way in and one way out. And they do exactly the same thing. They've got WhatsApp, yeah. they message, they go, hey, has anybody seen that car that's on the on the road at the moment driving slowly? They go, no, don't recognize it. It's no one I know. All of a sudden, you've got farmers going out with their front-end loaders on their tractors. <laughs> they move, they're moving a log across the road at various different parts. And then they go and confront the person and say, you know, you need Why to bring on. that sheet back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, farmers are generous people. One of the guys I go hunting on his land, he said, you know, I had somebody come up and they just looked, you know, a little bit shifty, driving slowly past the paddocks. And I stopped them and I said, are you guys okay? And they said, oh, oh you know, we're a bit hungry in that. And he says, well, are you looking for meat? And he said, yes. So we'll just ask. Yeah. Do you have any meat? He says, yeah, I actually just killed an old you this yeah. morning it's hanging in the chiller drive your station wagon down you can have it absolutely you know and com- that that's that community spirit that's being built but you know in the cities and things like that it's far worse than that you you're almost afraid to go and talk to your neighbors because yeah you don't know if they're on meth you don't know if you know they're going to whack you um <laughs> yeah you know, just the other day i had First time ever in my entire life, uh, my car has had the entire side of it keyed by somebody. And I can't work out where it was. Like, I hardly ever use it. I was at the supermarket or I was at church or I was at at a a shopping center. But somebody's just run a key down the side of the car. It's just insane. You know, I'm sitting there thinking, seriously? Like, like The destruction of property is is also just 
heightened as well. Like I was looking at, um, I think it was a story about a, a rental and people have just totally destroyed it. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's a crime. Why, why are they, I mean, to me, they should actually be charged for that. I mean, that's not happening either. I mean, I just feel like we're, if we're dealing with so many, I mean, look, 15 years ago, you could have turned on the news and the stories would have been about like a happy sheep or a cow or, you know, some cute dog stories. Well, there was, no, there was about stabbing. The and... Remember Shriek the sheep, you know, the, yes. the, the one yes, that had, had exactly. been 10 years of not being clipped. Yes. I mean, when's the last time you saw a story like that on the news? No, it's all ram raids, violence, you know, Sad. out of control, you know, we had the case the other day where Todd Scott, you know, the, the editor of or the owner of NBR, mm. uh, tries to make a citizen's arrest, and the police tell him to let the guy go. You can't do that, yeah. you know. Like it's insane. Yeah. It's, how is that normal in society now, where the police are on the side of the criminals? Exactly. I mean, and then you think about, you know, growing up, we had these rules, like obviously when I grew up, you could spank and do different things that you obviously can't do now. Um, But there are always consequences for an action. And now we don't have many consequences. And all you're seeing is a bunch of action. And, you know, we've got to figure out a way to get a hold of it. I mean, this is the, the at the pace that people and communities are changing and at the rate that we're starting to become more and more divided. I actually have a huge fear that this is going to only escalate and get worse. And the more that people try to inflame situations, we've actually just got to come together and figure out, you know, what are we going to do today? I understand that there's ways that we can, you know, nurture people in in the very beginning and support them, but we have issues right now. So right Mm. now that's what we've got to focus on. You know, it's all good to have these like visions and all these solutions that will take, you know, 50 years to implement. But you know what? We're all going to be dead. <laughs> you know, We've actually got to figure out what can we do today? What are we going to do in our first hundred days? What is this going to look like? How can we come up with proper solutions and how can we deliver on them? And how can we stop all this crazy division? It, I mean, it's, it's insane. You know, you get the situation with, with Posey Parker, for example coming to want to speak to maybe a hundred people in a park. Yeah. And 300 people, mostly men turn up yeah. to shout her down, to assault her, to assault her supporters. Yep. Because she doesn't believe that men are women. I know. <laughs> and then, and then Winston says exactly that. We're not having men going into women's bathrooms. It's crazy talk. Basically, he's saying it's crazy talk. The number of people that this affects is tiny and infinitesimal. We've got much bigger problems. Yeah. And the media howls them down and says that this is awful. Yeah. And they're like, we've got much bigger problems. And he's like, exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So you're having fun on the on the campaign trail this year. You know, I um, it is very different this year. Yeah. Um, I feel like, um, you know, it's actually this this campaign has been a bit sad in a way because everyone that I meet or that come to the meetings that I'm having, they're just they're sad and they and they do feel like they've lost the country that they have grown up and loved forever. You know, like we're so different now. So I I feel like it's a bit different. Um, the best part about it, though, is that I feel like there's this huge surge of support for New Zealand First. And I just that makes me quite excited because I think there's a huge power in having a center party. 
And also, as you as you would know, it's also a very hard game because you can go with either party and either Mm. way you go and you're a center, you're going to make the other half angry. Yeah. But if people understood the true power of the center, I mean, I think more people would would are actually probably New Zealand first supporters, to be fair. They just don't know it yet. Um, <laughs> and so that's probably a lot of what the campaign is, yeah, yeah. is trying to show people actually you don't have to be blue or red. You know, there's another one There's black and you can still take care of your health care services and look after business. You know, you don't actually have to do one or the other. There's a great way to balance policy. And that's where I think the power is with New Zealand first, you know, and everyone I hear complain about New Zealand first, I always ask, did you vote for us? And the, yeah, answer the answer is, is always no. no. Yeah. The pe- so, that's that's I mean- what I've said. You know, pe- <laughs> the people who complain the loudest and the longest about Winston Peters and New Zealand first didn't, even, national, vote for us. didn't even vote for them. They voted they, for they, national. They, voted or for they national. went to labor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're just blaming us because they, well, I feel, because they just don't want to come to terms that, they stuffed up. <laughs> well, they, they don't understand how MMP works, I think, generally. But, you know, that's a, a major issue that we're going to have to deal with. You know? mm. But you're going to do with that and deal that, eh? Well, that's what Reality Check Radio is all about. Keep up with the good work, Cam. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's been wonderful talking to you. And you've certainly given me a nice perspective on maintaining that discourse. And it's very refreshing to talk to candidates that are actually willing to discuss openly the issues that we've got in society and how we can set about fixing those. Yeah. Hey, thanks. I was really flattered to be invited. So thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Erica. No problem. All right. Take care. What I find amazing is how so many candidates feel compelled to stand in this most important of elections. And I love talking to all these candidates. Erica has a real chance, along with the other three freedom candidates, of getting into parliament. If New Zealand first get 8%, Erica is there. At 9%, Kirsten Murphy will join her. And at 10%, you can add Lee Donahue to the list. Tell me your thoughts on what Erica had to say by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Exciting news, everyone. Our RCR app is now live and it can be downloaded from the app stores, both iOS and Android. Thank you all for being so patient while being working hard behind the scenes to get this app out there. And I love it. Finally means I can divorce myself from the mainstream media in the mighty Isuzu D-Max. The Bluetooth connection works brilliantly. You can check that out at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Dr. Michael Bassett is a former Labour Party MP who retired in 1990. He's also a political historian, and Michael and I love delving into that history. I thought Michael would be a great guest to have on The Crunch, to give a history-based perspective on this election. And he's here to talk personalities, 
politics, parties, who's great, who's dreadful, and get his reckons on this election. Welcome to The Crunch, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Now, this is an exciting election. I don't know about you, but it, it certainly is for me. I think we're seeing something unusual happening out there. And so I thought I'd get someone who is a keen observer of elections over decades to share with our listeners some of your observations about where we're at and where we're heading. Well, that's that's nice to be asked. Um, I'm not finding it a particularly exciting campaign. Uh, I don't uh, think that either of the leading candidates uh, is particularly uh, exciting, uh, (laughs) leading the parties. The best um, uh, by far and uh, the one who, uh, you know, is the voice of the future is David Seymour. Yes. uh, the uh, and you know with David on the one hand at forty and Winston at seventy eight, you're left uh, thinking, um, uh, heavens, who's interested in the future of the country? Well, it appears both of those people are interested in the future of the country, but say so. <laughs> but perhaps taking it from different a different approach. And I guess with MMP and the advent of MMP, and of course you you. Uh, left Parliament before MMP arrived, so you never had to deal with the beast, um, mm. so to so to speak. But I think MMP forces people to try at least try and work together. Well, up to a point, yes, but it it fraction it fractionalizes or fractionates. So I'm not quite sure which the word is there. The political process. I mean, I my political life was one where the Labour Party incorporated everybody from uh, quite a significant chunk of the business community through to the extreme left. And you have to sort of find your position uh, within uh, the Labour Party. National had its own extremes. And um, so you learnt to work within the party. Uh, Once you got MMP, you ended up with people uh, being uh, rewarded, if you like, for having a difference. And you only had to uh, persuade 5% uh, or win a seat. And uh, you had uh, your party. And I think that MMP has actually divided this country terribly. I think also that MMP gave far too much power to the parties, which was not what was intended by the voters when they selected MMP. I they, agree with that. Yeah, they thought that they were going to uh, keep the power of the parties under control, and, and I think MMP actually expanded the power of the parties, but so much so that it created a cult of personality uh, where blind adherence to the leader uh trumps the core philosophy of the founding principles of each party. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think that the leadership of the parties was very important uh, and has always been ever since the days of uh, Dick Seddon. Seddon, Ward, Massey were big figures. Uh, So was Coates, um, not Forbes so much, but uh, Mickey Savage was incredibly important to Labour's first victory in 1935. And Peter Fraser, who was uh, Prime Minister uh, when I was a young fellow growing up, um, and uh, and so on over the years. Um, Yes, I think possibly the leader's are a little more important now, but 
Not very much. Um, they've always been important as my line. Mm. I mean, we've, we've seen, you know, in recent days, Christopher Luxon, you know, reprimanding one of his MPs for a stance that he put on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it was 10 years ago and making that MP say, oh, no, I'm in agreement with the leader, I'm in agreement with the party, we're this, we're that. This, it strikes me as, you know, National Party and the Labour Party in particular used to be a broad church that accepted people with different views, and now it seems that at the behest of the media almost, there's yeah. this gotcha-type thing which then creates this homogenised view of what the Labour Party or the National Party is. You've put your finger on it there, Cameron. I agree completely that the media, uh, I mean, I think the standard of the media has slipped in this country. Uh, the media in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, there were some incredible journalists around, really mm -hmm. old people. Nowadays, uh, you're looking at, at people who uh, th think they're doing a wonderful job when they engage in the, in a sort of a gotcha moment, you know, where something doesn't quite tally with something you said some little time ago, as though anybody cares much. Well, that's the thing that that uh, strikes me is this gotcha politics uh, stuff is not actually extending political debate in any way. It's uh, I'm going to get you um, no matter what for something you did 15, 20, 30. I mean, we saw this with John Key, didn't we? When the media hounded him for, you know, constantly over the years on his stance over the Springbok tour, like anyone cared 30 years later. Yes, quite, quite. But, uh, oh, those those things are very important to lesser mortals who have a job in the media and who themselves have very inadequate educations for the most part. Now, you've written a, a blog post recently. It's on the Bassett, Brash and Hyde website where you're talking about the media in quite a bit of detail. Uh, and some of the things that the media are doing and, in fact, forcing the opposition and also the government into making silly electoral mistakes because they're reacting to the media. Yes, and really the thrust of that article uh, that I wrote was that by concentrating all the time on picayune little bits of Nationals tax policy, they were just advertising, the media were advertising to the world and his wife that National had tax relief in its policy and making it therefore more likely that people would take an interest in it. I don't happen to think that National's tax policy is all that good. I'm not sure it's even um, wise at this moment. But having said that, they have issued the policy and the um, media is advertising its existence like there's no tomorrow. And Christopher Hipkins, all he's talking about is mm. National's tax cuts. And they're at the stage, I've seen this before, I saw it you know, at the end of the Bolger-Shipley uh, years, where the incumbent can say whatever they want, but no one's listening to them anymore. And all they hear from Christopher Hickens is Nationals tax cuts, blah, 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 blah. Nationals tax cuts, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it's, it's perpetuating what you're exactly what you're saying that the media uh, are following. I mean, I was sitting down with a, a, a prominent lawyer 
uh, just yesterday for breakfast, and he was saying, oh, this uh, nationals tax cut thing doesn't add up. And I said, oh, mate, no one cares. <laughs> like, literally no one cares. It's something that can be fixed later. But no one cares because they just don't want to hear anything more from anyone wearing a red uh, jacket or a red sweatshirt or a red T-shirt. They just don't want to hear it anymore. Well, it, it, it may well be that. Uh, but we've had moments like that in our mm. history. I in in the article I wrote, I compared it a little bit to uh, Sir Joseph Ward coming back after years and years and years in the wilderness um, and leading the opposition into the 1928 election and misreading his speech notes. And uh, in the opening of uh, his campaign in the Auckland Town Hall, instead of um, uh, saying that he would borrow abroad over 10 years, a sum of 70 million pounds. Mm. He had a sort of a, a, a blue funk because he was in a diabetic uh, kind of state and uh, said he'd borrow the 70 million in one year. Well, of course, the media went absolutely berserk, as did the um, uh, government of the day. Uh, and um, all they did was advertise Ward's policy. And they talked about it so much and belted him around, this poor old boy, he was 72 and uh, frail, uh, and they belted him about, and um, he was elected. And I think uh, Chippy is uh, busy doing the same thing with um, uh, talking on and on about tax cuts of nationals. I suspect it'll be the primary thing he talks about tonight uh, in the uh, debate with um, Luxon. Yeah, I'm, I'm not looking forward to that debate because I think that uh, I think that we're going to see two people with a bunch of strap lines that they've rehearsed, and doesn't matter what the question is, they're going to deliver those strap lines, and it's going to be an unedifying uh, performance from both of them. It isn't going to fill, fill either of us with confidence. I I fear you're right. Yeah, I I mean, I the, the people that you're mentioning from the past. Uh, you know, the big names, the profiles of those leaders. But they also did big things. Yes. And I think back in the MMP era in particular, and I can't think of a single big thing that has been done in the MMP era. Most of it's small beer stuff, tinkering I'm at the at the outside. I'm really struggling to see something that, is as important as, say, your 1989 local body reforms or the think big things that Muldoon did that, you know, ironically, everybody opposed, but now we're all sitting there clutching onto the power that those things generate. These were big things that were done. Michael Joseph Savage, um, state housing. Yes. What has anybody you- done in the modern MMP era that's big in your view? Uh, I think the biggest was KiwiSaver. Right. Okay. Yeah, I'll I'll accept that. I think Michael Cullen's Kiwi Saver really meant something for a wide number of people. Mm. Uh, Our super, the government that I was in, the Kirk government uh, in the 1970s, introduced a superannuation scheme, which Muldoon canned and then brought in his own system in 1976 7. But um, Kiwi Saver was really a big one. And, uh, you know, people are able to 
calculate when they'd like to retire and uh, uh, conscious of what their assets are going to be and how much they'll need and what the state of health is. And uh, that's that's been a huge thing. Is there anything that John Key did that was big? No, not much. Well, the biggest things he did were um, uh, retrograde, uh, like sending, um, uh, what's his name, Sharples off to sign up to the uh, Indigenous rights uh, mm. uh, notion. Uh, Maori are not Indigenous to New Zealand. I mean, they're, uh, they, I grew up and you grew up in a world where uh, we were told about how they sailed their canoes from uh, Hawaii. And it was to Hawaii that their spirits returned when they died. And um, so that was a mistake. And it was made because John knew nothing about New Zealand history. I don't think he's ever read much. And um, now, what was his second uh, uh, big mistake? Um, flag. The flag. Oh, the flag. Yes, yes. Well, that was a, a sort of a silly uh, notion. And he misjudged the public uh, very seriously on that. Yeah, I had a discussion with him at the time, and I said to him, you're wrong on this, and you're going to be proved wrong. And he um, rather arrogantly suggested to me that his power of persuasion was more efficient and more effective at changing uh, people's minds than my opposition to changing the flag. And I said, I said to him, well, he said, he even said to me, look, the Labour Party even has it as one of their election promises to change the flag. I said, you don't think that's going to last five seconds after you announce you're going to change the flag, do you? (laughs) They'll oppose oppose changing the flag because you're suggesting it. Mm. And that was the pure politics of it. And, And in many respects, I don't think John Key understood pure politics. Yes, he could be advised sensibly and he had some great advisors around him but i don't think his on that issue uh his instincts uh were anywhere near what the public thought and remember it was quite late in his time at the top and people were tiring of him his other great failure was his failure to honour the promise that he made in 2008 to um, get new, the New Zealand economy performing as well as Australia's. Mm. And uh, he impanelled um, uh, John um, Don Brash and a number of other uh, high-powered people to come up with a template on how it could be done. But it just required a little bit much concentration and uh, a little bit more rigorous self-control than he wanted to engage in. And uh, so they battered it away and the New Zealand economy has slid in relation to Australia ever since. It's interesting you say that he didn't concentrate on some of these things uh, Mm. in a way that he should have. Mm. And, And I put that down to the MMP environment and our rather short, by international standards, three-year term. And if people who are reforming-type politicians, and you know we can probably count them on the fingers of one hand, um, they tend to do things in a, with a great hiss and a roar in the first year, settle it down in the second, and then talk about anything else but that in the third so that they can get re-elected. Well, there's an element of truth in that, I think, uh, a big element of truth in it. Uh, but John Key reminded me very much of Keith Holyoke, and I argue that in my mm. book, The 
prime ministers. Um, I mean, Holyoke uh, uh, campaigned, I think it was steady as she goes or um, uh, some slogan like that in the 60s. And that was basically John Key's approach. Uh, so long as I can stay at the top as prime minister and uh, uh, not alienate uh, too many people, uh, that's good for New Zealand. Well, mistaking yourself for the benefit of your country is not a great look. No, and as soon as he realised that uh, it was going to be a touch and go at the next election, he cut and run. And I, I really have a personal objection to MPs and prime ministers who stood on the hustings and told us that they were going to be there for the long haul. And when the going gets tough, they disappear and, you know, for family reasons or whatever reason they concoct to exit. No gas in the tank in the case of Ardern. You know, um, oh, and in Key's case, don't forget, he said more or less the same. Yeah. So they they just bugger off into the ether. <laughs> and then turn up about, you know, a year later as some sort of commentator on anything that anybody's talking about. Mm. And, you know, they really should just shut up. You've left. Go away. Anything you had to say was uh, important when you are in, but it's not important now. And, and it just grinds my gears that people, the media in particular, keep going back to these people who, when the going got tough, they cut and run. There's no intestinal fortitude anymore in politicians. I presume the problem of, uh, of wanting to comment after you've left office comes from the fact that you, you're so used to the limelight and you're so used to and so opinionated on so many things that you can't bear not being questioned uh, and not uh, being seen to have an opinion. It's a personal problem that all politicians have winding down. I understand it a little bit myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always say to politicians, you, know, you need to stay grounded because one day you're not going to be a politician. And you'll know that day because that's the day your phone stops ringing and people stop actually calling you to think, hear what you've got to say about anything or they've gotten you're no use to them anymore so they don't ring you. But one thing is certain, they'll stop ringing you. Yeah. Oh, that's that's true to a point. Mm. Uh, it depends. Some people stay too long and retire too late. Um, I got out of politics at 52, and I still had years of uh, activity left in me, and uh, mm. I went off and did a whole lot of uh, other things, and uh, um, I kept busy. But um, I feel sorry for somebody who gets to 78 and still can't work out what on earth uh, can occupy his mind uh, in his remaining years. Well, he would say he's a patriot and he wants to sort things out. Well, a fat lot of help that'll be. I mean, <laughs> he, he, he gave us um, uh, Jim Bolger in 1996. Uh, he kept Helen Clark in in 2005. He gave us Jacinda in 2017 and now I think regrets it deeply. I mean, who's going to really follow his judgment and uh, think, gosh, he's finally cracked it? He can be trusted. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> oh, but he's enigmatic, really, isn't he? And a oh, bit yes. of a rascal and a scallywag yeah. and fun yeah. to watch in action. 
Yes, but our country uh, can only uh, uh, tolerate scallywags up to a point. Uh, you've got to remain serious. Uh, otherwise, you'll go to hell in the handcart. Well, that's where we're sitting at the moment economically, isn't it? We've got a, a bunch of people who really don't understand the basics of economics trying uh, desperately to spend their way out of economic doldrums. Yes, and they're, they're busy criticising everybody else for spending, and yet every single day Hipkins announced some new expenditure. I mean, there were, what was it yesterday, solar panels and subsidies for solar panels. I can't imagine anything more geared towards um, upper-income groups who can afford to install solar panels than that uh, little thing. And the day before it was something else, oh, extending the years for mammograms, was it? And uh, I mean, every day there's some new expenditure coming out of the government which um, uh, told us last week with the preview that uh, the room for manoeuvring is very, very small uh, financially. Well, you know, and some of the things that they're announcing are things they've announced six years ago, and they <laughs> still haven't delivered them. I mean, do you remember Jacinda Ardern saying that this year was the year of delivery? Well, I think the post office went AWOL that year because nothing got delivered. <laughs> the post office has almost given up, or except, of course, for the courier service, which is splendid. I mean, it is the best of the courier services, but the old um, uh, penny postage of Sir Joseph Ward's um, uh, has long gone. Oh, I don't think people write letters anymore. You know, how many people actually bother to check their letterbox for anything these days? Yeah, I posted a letter last week, but it was the first time for a long time. <laughs> well, you know what? You could have, you should have um, got someone to video that, stuck it on TikTok. You know, <laughs> Michael Bassett posts a letter, and uh, yeah, it probably would have had you know ten million global views. That's he was somebody using a, le a letterbox, snail mail. Yeah, yes, yes. In the modern era. And I say modern era, let's just draw a line and say it's 1996 with the advent of MMP. Are there any standout politicians for you as a historian that you'd say, well, I'd really like to dig into a bit about them uh, rather than you know a couple of pages in a book uh, of collection of leaders? Is there anyone who stood out for you as an admirable leader who did things to make New Zealand better? Well, since 1996 to today, the most important politician by far would be Helen Clark. Mm. I mean, she would be second to Peter Fraser as uh, uh, Labour's most important leader. Mickey Savage uh, is there as a, in the in the background as the um, uh, great man of the early 1930s, um, mid 1930s. But Helen is a force of nature, really. Mm. Um, and uh, she had a phenomenal way of going about governing. Uh, but what did she really achieve? Kiwi Saver, yes. She um, put a dampener on the foreshore and seabed silliness that the Supreme Court had uh, undertaken in uh, 2003. Um, but, of course, uh, eventually the National Party changed that for the worse uh, mm. in 2011. Um, 
what else did she do? Oh, um, she certainly, her health policy was pretty significant. And I think the education policy within the limits uh, of her MPs um, was uh, were not bad. But um, your question really is, tell me who's been really significant mm. since uh, 1996. And apart from Helen Clark and Michael Cullen as her assistant, I don't think there's been anybody who's really significant. Don Brash flashed across the scene for five seconds and uh, uh, has left an imprint in, in some areas, particularly in race relations and mm. uh, his constant uh, push for equal opportunities rather than uh, special advantages for Māori. But other than that, we're uh, scratching the bottom of the barrel to find uh, really significant people who will go down in New Zealand history. Yeah, Helen Clark was someone that I didn't agree with her politics or her methods but I could admire her abilities uh, in politics. I mean, to steer down Michael Cullen and a couple of others, you know, for the leadership. And, I mean, she literally steered them down and said, no, you're wrong, go away. Uh, and then to go on and win the election, the 1999 election. Probably was, her biggest move there, Cam, I think, was probably getting Anderton on the side. Yes. We forget that, that Anderton was polling quite high around 1994 or 5, mm. declined in 1996 a bit, but he was still there and had a capacity to divide Labour. And that peace agreement that was made between Clark and Anderton in 1998 was very important to uh, Helen's eventual win in 1999. I guess the other thing too is she managed to to last three terms and yeah. we hadn't seen that in from the Labour Party for decades. No, they, she, were, they were considered to be a one-term or at best two-term party, but not a three-term party. Certainly in modern times, they mm. got uh, 1935, 38, 43, 46. They got four yes. terms uh, initially. But yes, you're right. Then it was a one-termer in the uh, 57 to 60, a one-termer, 72, 75, two terms, 84 to 90, and then the three terms of Helen Clark's. Yes, it was an extraordinary performance, delivered, of course, by um, MMP mm. uh, and uh, by um, Winston and uh, Peter Dunn. And now we've got the modern Labour Party, the current mob that are in there. Jacinda Ardern led them to a historic win in 2020 when most of New Zealand was still in thrall and, and suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, that's my description of it anyway. But it was a historic uh, MMP win with a, an outright majority to the Labour Party. Uh, and then two short years later, she was gone, uh, leaving Chris Hipkins to it appears rather ineptly defend the ground that she led, and they look like they're going to lose. Well, yes, well, two terms is uh, particularly 
I mean, one of the things about this Labour Party, it's not the Labour Party I was ever a member of. In fact, I'm embarrassed to admit I uh, was uh, Labour uh, because people think I might be a supporter of uh, this appalling government. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, the old Labour Party was about a hand up. It wasn't about a hand out. Yeah. Uh, if there was to be a handout to people, it was for some specific limited purpose. Not this government. This government it believes in splashing money around everywhere. If you've got an itch, they'll scratch it. But are we looking at a, a, a return possibly of Labor not lasting three terms? And, and, you know, I've talked to Matt McCartan about this, and he said to me that, Cam, you've got to remember that New Zealand politics is about halves. So, you win an election and you get given three years. That's the first half of the, of of a game. And if you played okay, then the voters will give you the right to have a second half and complete six years. Yes. But then when you come to the third term, if they've given you that ability to do two terms, you're now playing another game, which has got two halves in it which is why at the end of the third term, people have had enough of you and you don't get to play the, the second half of yeah. the full amount to get four terms. Would you yeah. agree with that? Yes, more or less. Uh, the third term for Helen Clark was important in one sense. It enabled KiwiSaver to be uh, cemented in. And uh, as we were saying, uh, that was a very significant milestone. But uh, yes, Third terms are dangerous in the sense that uh, they do open up a, a sort of a tiredness factor that um, can uh, tell against a government. I mean, at present, there are not many people around who don't think that a change of government would improve things. I mean, I think most people are thinking, oh, my God, I'd like change. Do I trust National Enact? That's the the those that will vote uh, Labour, uh, and the others are just saying, "Oh, to hell with um, uh, Labour. We've had them long enough. Let's get rid of them." And when that's the prevailing feel that I get. You know, I can look at the numbers. I can be like David Farah and look at the numbers and say, "Look, okay, Labour has lost fifty percent of their support." from the previous election. Again, he says that's unprecedented. He's never seen that happen in, in New Zealand politics before. Mm. Now, now, true, he hasn't been around New Zealand politics for as long as you, <laughs> but... Uh, he's, not I'm as, he's not as old. <laughs> yeah, I'm scratching my head, and I can't think of a single instance where a governing party has lost 50% or more of their support. Sure, 10%, maybe 20 you know, if we look back at the end of the Muldoon years when uh, Bob Jones set up the New Zealand Party and grabbed 15% of the vote, for 12. No, or 12, yeah, for no seat. At one stage he was polling around 20, if I recall. Mm. But he got 12, yeah, um, but that was enough to change the government, 12%. And that's one of the biggest, you know, swings that I've seen traditionally and particularly under MMP a swing of 5% will change the government, but we're seeing 50% just well, of gone. Course, you've got to remember that uh, under MMP, no government has gotten remotely near 
uh, 50% of the total vote, which Jacinda got in uh, mm. 2020. And um, that in itself is remarkable and must make that scene that you've just painted look a little more extreme. Um, yes. Well, it's uh, I can't think of any case off the cuff. Perhaps Labour's defeat in uh, 1990, there was a significant fall off there. It, the vote was about 48% in 1987 and um, fell back to 35, I think it was, 34 or 35 in uh, 1990. It was quite a fall off, but it's you're right, it's much more serious this time. Well, 1990 was 12.82% swing. Swing. Okay. Away from Labour, 12.82, and the, the government changed, and, and that was a landslide election. Yeah. Um, what was, I'll just uh, look up 1975, and we'll see what that says. That was a pretty significant switch, too, uh, as was 72. I mean, 72 and 75, the winning government, the winning party, got a majority of 23 seats in each of those elections. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, you'll be surprised to know that it was an 8.8% swing in 1975. Okay. So yeah. that's, Not again... great uh, in today's day and age. No, and, and uh, uh, it was a 3.7% swing against Jack Marshall in 72. Right. So that was an even smaller uh, uh, swing Enough that changed the government. And we're looking at a 50% swing here at the moment. Yes. Uh, on the polls, and I, and I imagine there'll be another poll this week, uh, which will. Um, I just sit here looking at these polls, and I think I'm thinking back. When was the last time we saw seven polls released in ten days that all said the same thing? I mean, you know, I'm a political tragic. We look at these <laughs> polls, and you always you always look for one that's got a glimmer of hope for you, you know, and you think, oh, the, all the others are rogue, or that one's a rogue, or whatever. Yeah. This was blood on the floor in 10 days, seven polls in 10. I don't yeah. think I've ever seen that before. No, and as, like, like like the British polls, I mean, you know, they, they're polling all the time. Hmm. Uh, and it, I think it must be that polling is a very expensive thing and the newspapers have been in free fall for years here and uh, they've polled less and less and... Um, uh, radio uh, doesn't have the money to do it. So um, what did you make? Can I ask you a question? What did sure. you make of uh, the Roy Morgan poll? Well, I I tend to not look at polls as an individual poll. I look at the trend. Yes. What's the trend telling me? I mean, the Roy Morgan poll has always been a bit suspect. You know, they poll from Australia um, they, they have a different methodology to what a lot of other polls run. Um, maybe it's a bit of jealousy that it's an Australian polling company uh, and not a New Zealand polling company. It's always kind of been favouring to the left. I'm not sure that left and right exists anymore, but <laughs> it used to favour the left. Uh, it shows uh, Winston Peters probably a little bit higher at that stage than he perhaps was, although he's done a couple of things that may see him uh, leap up a little bit. But and Seymour uh, polling very well and act. They mm. were up at eight, I think they were at 18% in 
and I'm not sure they're uh, at 18 percent. Although no, I, think I don't think they are. They're higher than 12, I think. Yeah, it's funny because David Seymour uh, was at one of my staff parties uh, after the in 2021 after the 2020 election in January, talking to a group group of people, and somebody said, "Oh, okay, David, you've done really well." Where do you see ACT going from here? And his answer was rather strange. He said, look, I only see the ACT party as a 10% party. Uh, once we start getting over 10%, it gets a bit wobbly. And uh, I'm just concentrating on producing a good 10% party that can be reliable as a coalition partner. And I think back to those days now, and I look at what he said last week, where he effectively threatened the National Party by saying that he, and it was a bizarre threat too, because it doesn't make any sort of political, logical sense, where he said, I'm going to give, uh, I could give national confidence, but I'll treat supply on a case-by-case matter. Well, if you don't give supply, you're not giving confidence. And so it was a rather strange statement. What do you make of that? I don't know that I would have phrased it quite the way he did, but um, I mean, If you're an ACT person and you're looking at nationals' policies and their statements, you really do sometimes ask yourself, is there a need to change the government? I mean, the National Party (laughs) does does seem to uh, uh, accept that just about everything that's in existence will be kept in existence, including 15,000 more state employees who are eating their heads off budget-wise, and um, all the mad changes. uh, I haven't heard any indicator from the National Party that they're going to really undermine to Fatu Aura. They might uh, do away with the Māori-only component. Um, what And the education changes, I'm not greatly impressed by what I've heard. So what I'm really saying is, in relation to David Seymour, uh, that, um, you know, he he's going to negotiate point by point by point. If he's, if he's keeping that lot in Cabinet, he wants some return and the public would expect some return from ACT. And uh, I think that uh, what ACT's got to say on a whole lot of things, particularly on race relations, um, I mean, he's got a capacity to put some backbone into national. Mm. I mean, that, that's the thing is I should be a natural ACT Party voter. I have nothing to do with the National Party. I find them woke. I find them a deep shade of pink. <laughs> uh, I think that under Christopher Luxon, they're more left than Helen Clark's Labour government, and that says a lot. And I agree with you. I don't think that National will unwind very much at all about what Labour has done in the last six years, uh, some of the most appalling divisive policies that have been brought in. And everything I hear from Christopher Luxon and Christopher Bishop and Nicola Willis, who are the the wet, woke wombles at the top of the pile in the party now, is that they would be a more efficient form of the Labour Party, that they're the other side of the same coin that the Labour Party is on. I think you can argue that that's been um, national uh, through history. 
I mean, the hiss and roar that uh, Sid Holland promised during the 40s uh, turned out to be no more than um, uh, pulling away uh, subsidies in 1950 um, and uh, um, treating the trade union movement uh, tough in 1951, but then falling into line uh, with uh, Fintan Patrick Walsh and the union movement during the 50s. Mm. And um, Holyoke's government was very much a sort of steady-as-she-goes, uh, let's play the the game that Labour has left for us. And uh, Muldoon was, if anything, more radical than uh, mm. Labour with uh, his controls and this capacity to try to uh, screw the economy down. Um Bolger, no, great change much. And we now find that he's a little sorry that he wasn't more left. He's uh, the Malcolm Fraser of New Zealand politics. Yes, yes, he is a bit. It's quite quite a good uh, analogy. And uh, John Key uh, was absolutely as steady as she goes, don't let's rock the boat uh, kind of a politician. So yeah, I, I've always described the National Party as the party of the status quo. They're yeah. efficient managers yeah. of what Labour left before them. That's about it. Uh, <laughs> I think you're right on it there, Cam. Yeah, and that's why I'm struggling a bit with who to vote for in this election. I can't bring myself to vote for the National Party. Their behaviour during uh, the COVID years was to say that they would have done everything that Jacinda Ardern did, that, you know, all the divisiveness. They just would have been more efficient fascists <laughs> in, in, in implementing it and stumping on our rights. David Seymour has said some appalling things uh, and done some appalling things. He's somebody who has paraded himself around the country as a bastion of free speech. Now, free speech can only exist if you support all the other rights that support that. I mean, you know, People mock the United States, but the U.S. Constitution is almost a perfect document where the right of, to free speech is the First Amendment, and that's protected by the right to bear arms in order to ensure that the right to free speech exists as the Second Amendment, and everything flows from there. We where don't does, have anything David, like that. Where does David fall down on all of that, though? Well, I, I mean, well, I, I know you're an ACT Party you know, stalwart, but... I'm, you not, know, I'm not he, a stalwart, but I, I'm almost certainly going to vote for him. He, he was, he, this was before 2021 and 2022. He was touring the country, making speeches about free speech and how important it was and all that. And yet when a bunch of people turned up uh, on the forecourt of parliament to express their free speech, he refused to listen. He refused to engage. And he was the bastion of, of rights that, that he has put the ACT Party out as being. And yet he joined in with the governing party uh, with deriding these people who were in serious pain. Uh, I, you know, I, I think you're going too far there. I mean, you're, you're putting a gloss on that rabble that were in Parliament building. Well, I was one of those, Michael. Well, that's all right. I mean, there were some quite good people there, but there were a hell of a lot of uh, um, losers. Well, I wouldn't people put them as losers. They were they were put in a position by an uncaring government that told them that they were caring while at the same time shutting down their businesses, their jobs, destroying their families, 
and all the other things. That's and, what those guys were doing around Parliament. They more or less ruined business within about a one-mile radius for um, uh, weeks and weeks and weeks. Well, I would have to disagree on that because I was there and uh, the the – you know, you could go further out away from the Parliament area and Wellington was dead. And it was dead because the vast majority of people who live and work in Wellington are working for corporates or the government. And all of those businesses were in stay-at-home, uh, work-from-home environments, and many still are, uh, which is why the whole economy in Wellington has gone through the floor. And it was a convenient excuse to blame, um, you know, a bunch of people who were protesting about appalling degradations of human rights that well and we're all told that it was all wonderful you know that well, this is okay and they had a choice and all of this so, there was no choice there's an element of truth in what you're saying but only an element of truth uh i mean for every uh, every um uh genuine person around parliament there was a um a, a troublemaker as well uh and um I and what David Seymour did on balance was to try and keep away from them, believing that there were more of the troublemakers than uh, uh, than there were uh, good people. I think in retrospect, he possibly would have mm. spent a bit more time or and gone and seen them. But uh, anyway, that's uh, that small stuff. Um, well, as I say, you can't put the poo back in the donkey, you know. <laughs> uh, but one thing I would suggest, uh, Michael, if you've got time, is to go and watch River of Freedom, the movie that was released uh, last week uh, about the Wellington protests. And uh, you might find your view changes a little bit if you watch that movie. It's uh, very moving, very powerful, and it actually shows what I witnessed when I was at the at the Wellington protests. River and of Freedom. River of Freedom, yep. Go and watch that. Uh, it's well worth it. It's beautifully put together. And it shows what I think is a more true example rather than the appalling documentaries that stuff has put together in Radio New Zealand and various other, you know, agitprop uh, organisations in the media. And uh, when you actually see what, was going on behind the scenes and the in the mass movement that there was to make such a thing happen, you realize that there is some fighting spirit in New Zealand and we still do have that old Kiwi mentality of working together on things. And uh, I think it would change your mind. Oh, well, I'll have a look. Uh... Yeah. Um, so you described this government as an appalling government. Yeah. Right? You're a historian. Have there been worse ones, or is this one actually the worst? Not in my lifetime. <laughs> uh, I'm prepared to believe that the uh, 30 to 35 government was uh, pretty bad, although Coates, when he joined the government and uh, became Minister of Finance in 1933, certainly started to turn around the Forbes government. But that one possibly was worse I can't think back to another one since 1890 that would have been as bad as this government. I mean, your real problem with this government is just simply that you've got a whole collection of student politicians. Uh, none of them has really done anything uh, of significance in their lives uh, except uh, sit around Parliament and, uh, um, you know, wisecrack. 
And um, none of them seems that none of them does any reading. I don't think Chris Hipkins uh, uh, reads at all. He builds rock gardens, I'm told, and looks after um, uh, his garden. Eats but, sausage rolls. Yes, oh, yes. But he doesn't read. He doesn't know anything about New Zealand history. Grant Robertson knows nothing about New Zealand history and had never done economics, I gather, at university. He knows uh, even less about economics, yeah. Quite, quite. And, uh, you know, I'm just not used to governments led by people who know nothing. Carmel Cepeloni is a disaster. You talk about getting the incentives wrong for poor people. I mean, that's why um, poverty is actually significantly worse now than it was in 2017. This government's actually created poverty and will go on creating more poverty with the sorts of um, social welfare policies they've got. And the education system is just, oh, don't start me. (laughs) So that's quite an indictment, really. That this is in your yeah. This is my lifetime, and I'm yeah, yeah, your lifetime. This is the worst government, and even you can look through the lens of history, being a historian, and sort out the you know the the publicity from fact. And you're saying this is the worst government ever in New Zealand. Yes, with the possible exception of thirty to thirty-five. Yeah, but that's three years. So this is six years. So Six years beats three years. (laughs) So let's just talk about how it got like that. Andrew Little was not a spectacular leader. He's an unlovable, unlikable person. They put in Jacinda Ardern and they were elected on nothing more than a slogan and some, you know, massive policies that they couldn't even get close to delivering. I mean, if you put Jacinda Ardern in a room full of Lego, she'd struggle to build a house, let alone (laughs) 100,000 houses. These were big promises that they never delivered on and quietly shelved. They didn't really have all that much detailed promise stuff in 2017. I mean, that's why they had those 300 committees, which were set up in um, um, 2018, really to uh, tell them what to do. And, you know, basically they were going to pull the whole world apart. And they're suffering as a result of doing so much damage to the fabric of New Zealand and lacking the administrative skills to be able to put it back together again. And, uh, I mean, who would say that the health system with Te Aura is performing better than the system with the um, uh, district health boards prior to uh, 2020. I mean, you'd have to be a fool to argue that health has significantly improved uh, as a result of anything uh, Labor has done. You'd have to be a, a complete mug and not read the newspapers even to believe that education has improved. They don't even begin to... I mean, Hipkins has really been responsible for the last six years of education. Nearly all of it is as the minister. And uh, all that time, standards of education, reading, writing, arithmetic have all slid. And, um, oh, dear. (laughs) Pauling government. Pauling government. But there was so much promise. 
you know. Th- I never believed it. Uh, you you might have. No, no, I never did. Was, I met Jacinda Ardern in person in 2008 uh, in Warrensville, of all places. Uh, when David Farrer and I were traveling around New Zealand in what we called the Blogmobile. We'd been gifted a motorhome and this act party supporter said, oh, come and have lunch at, at my place and um, I'll, I'll get along a politician. I thought, oh, okay, well, this will be interesting. David Farrer and I tip up at this place for lunch and in comes Jacinda Ardern. Now, I sort of briefly knew who she was. Uh, I thought she was, you know, uh, somewhat stupid. I haven't changed my opinion of her after that three-hour lunch. In fact, it probably got worse. Uh, where she regaled us all with a selection of bumper sticker slogans and nothing more deep than that. And I thought, if this is the great white hope of the Labour Party, then they've got trouble. And then, you know, little did I know that she was going to then become the Prime Minister. But I think she was as vacuous as a Prime Minister as she was uh, at that lunch in 2008. Uh, David Farrell was, of course, smitten, as he is always by a pretty face. <laughs> but, well, uh, you know, I, my, my gut instinct said this woman hasn't got anything. Well, in many respects, of course, she's a bit like Mickey Savage. I mean, Savage was no great brain. Uh, Savage didn't really master policy very well at all. Thank God he had Peter Fraser at his elbow and mm. Nash. Otherwise, the first Labour government uh, would have been a disaster. Um, Labour has occasionally gone for people who are pretty faces and uh, have a ready smile and have a positive outlook on life. And Mickey Savage had that and Jacinda had that. But depth, intellectual depth and grunt, no, 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 neither of them. It's been said that the COVID years were an effective coup where Jacinda Ardern surrounded herself with about five ministers. We never saw or heard from any other minister for a good long period of time. We never saw press releases. We never saw them announcing anything. It was only Jacinda and Chris Hipkins and Grant Robertson and David Parker that we saw doing anything with, you know, various uh, deputies along the way, you know, Kelvin Davis and now Carmel Cipollone. Andrew Little uh, struggling with health, uh, Mm. of course, Uh, and um, uh, Michael Wood, who would have to be the um, most overrated pastime uh, that uh, Labour has ever had in any prominent position. Uh, the $785 million uh, walking and cycling bridge. And, um, oh, dear, dear, dear. Uh, light rail to to uh, Mount Roskill, all of these fanciful things that he enthusiastically supports. They're still spending money on light rail out to the airport at the same time as uh, we're said to be nearly broke. Uh, certainly, uh, the prefuse suggests there's no extra money for um, anything. The just let's just touch on Michael Wood because he was seen as the great white hope of the <laughs> of the Labour Party, right? Oh, and I, I always thought he reminded me of Basil Brush, you know, just yeah. as demeanour and and then as farcical as Basil Brush. And it turns out that my gut feel is right again. But I can't believe he wrecked his career for the, effectively a Big Mac, chips and a Coke. 
Well, I, I, I really don't. Uh, I can only say what I've observed of him, mm. but he, uh, he was nothing like as bright or as well educated as the person he replaced as the Phil mm. Goff. Yeah, Phil Goff, and uh, he just puffed up with his own self-importance. Uh, his career highlight was measuring the inside seam of businessmen's legs at Hugh Wright's. Yes, I gather that was it. Uh, it was what my mother called a counter jumper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So let's just wrap this up, Michael, by getting your assessment of who is there in the Labour Party that is going to possibly be their next leader and or next prime minister after they get eviscerated at this election. Is there anyone that you can think of or, or is there anyone that springs to mind or are they not yet born? No. I mean, that's the problem. You're, first, we don't know who's going to survive the election. Uh, a huge swathe, at least 20 Labour MPs are going to be defeated, even if you just accept the uh, uh, the figures as they are now, the poll figures. Mm. So who's going to be left well, we'll have to have a look at that. But I don't see amongst any of them anybody with real leadership uh, uh, skills. If they do possess leadership skills, boy, they've been keeping them uh, quiet. Uh, we've uh, we've seen no evidence. So I'm coming back to your question. I mean, I'm inclined to think that the, the next leader of the Labour Party, the next effective one who will lead them back to office, isn't yet in Parliament. Wow, that's that's pretty devastating. I mean, I'm looking at the numbers, and I think we could be looking at an overhang election here yes. where Labor wins more electorate seats than they're entitled to uh, by their list score. Yeah. And uh, But I'm also seeing uh, the distinct possibility of a massive decapitation result yeah. where senior leaders like David Parker, who's one person who I despise personally but respect politically, um, you know, he's slagged me off in Parliament for his own gain and all of that sort of thing, but that's just the cut and thrust of politics. Uh, he's well respected across the political spectrum for his political abilities and his management abilities, but he's st seriously staring down the barrel of unemployment, uh, along with every other person that's on the list, uh, including Grant Robertson. Well, Grant Robertson, of course, uh, is is just going to be a list MP and presumably mm. he'll be in the next parliament, but there won't be many others off the list uh, for uh, Labour. And um, uh, as I say, I think their uh, next winner isn't yet in the House. But wow. where's that person? I mean, the CTU has not exactly covered itself in glory uh, this campaign. In fact, they have uh, proven themselves to be the normal corrupt outfit that they always ha have been. And um, you, you're not uh, looking at any traditional labourish kind of background that's got a star that will go into Parliament and do uh, anything. It's almost like they've forgotten that they're the working man's party or the working person's party, if we're going to be politically correct. Def defining what the working man is becomes, of course, more difficult as time moves on. And uh, instead of people uh, being good, honest tradies out there, uh, of which we've got a shortage these days, 
a whole swathes of people are in IT and, uh, you know, all sorts of other jobs which weren't thought of in the days when uh, the term the working man's party was invented. Yeah, I think Chris Trotter had a really good analogy that he hasn't used for a number of years. He used it, uh, you know, during the David Cunliffe leadership debacle. Uh, He described a typical Labour voter as Waitakere man you know, a blue-collar type person, um, maybe middle management as well, toiling away, paying the mortgage. Uh, Kids go to an average school. They live in an average suburb uh, out west. Um, It seems to me that that ethic, work ethic, that Kiwi can-do attitude has sadly been destroyed over at least the last six years and possibly, you know, a little bit longer than that that we no longer listen to the ordinary Kiwi. Yes, I think the makeup of the work, uh, the workers in the country is changing all the time, of course. The demographic changes are very considerable. And, uh, I mean, I think back to the attitude that I uh, represented uh, in Parliament and, uh, you know, the uh, they, they were tradies, with a caravan on the front lawn, often mm. go off to uh, a rewer at Christmas time, and uh, um, people who um, were quite unlike what would be called the working man today. Yes, of course, there are tradies around, thank God. Uh, who else is going to um, uh, do your plumbing and your electrical work? But the uh, the sort of ordinary workforce is a different creature to what it used to be. Yeah, I'm totally different. And, you know, I'm just thinking of the current Teatitui MP, Phil Twyford, mm. and some of his grandiloquent statements about Kiwi Build. And I'm surprised the National Party, or indeed the ACT Party, hasn't gone through and pulled all the video of that and turned it into ads and saying, well, where are the houses, Mr Twyford? Yeah. Yes, or uh, probably they don't want to give um, uh, a look at uh, or give too much publicity to some of the appalling stuff that has been built. I mean, there's some just gross housing around Auckland that uh, is a result of uh, Kiwi built. Yeah, just appalling. Well, you know, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Michael. It's always fascinating when we get together. I think the last time we got together was outside. uh, the Civic Theatre when we were crossing paths and we spent about half an hour talking, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, that's a long time ago, Cam. It is. A lot, anyway. lot's gone under the bridge, but uh, yeah. it's always a pleasure uh, picking your brains about history. And you know, I'm an amateur historian. You know, I, I have a particular interest in military history and political history, but it's always good to touch base with people like yourself. And uh, in the past, I spoke with Barry Gustafson and people like that, um, because if you don't learn from history, uh, then you're just going to repeat a lot of the mistakes that have happened in yep. the past. And that's what I see the Labour Party doing now. And you've described them as the most appalling government in New Zealand political in my history. Lifetime. Well, in your lifetime, but you can't find anything actually in history in New Zealand either. So it's not just your lifetime, it's it's the the whole of as long as we've had politics and parliament in in New Zealand, these are the worst. And that's quite some label to put on them. 
But, you know, I actually agree with you, and I'll be glad to see the back of them. But what scares me the most is that we have a, a strong national party that's not being kept in check by either David Seymour or David Seymour and Winston Peters working in conjunction with each other. That's oh. what frightens me the most, is that Christopher Luxon just isn't strong enough to, you know, do what's necessary to turn this country around. They'll work together when the results come in uh, on uh, the 14th of October. Let's just hope uh, they've got the numbers to um, uh, make it for a better New Zealand. Well, let's hope you and I get our wish that we do get our politicians uh, and a selection of parties that can govern for the, for the whole of New Zealand and for the better of New Zealand. And I thank you for your time coming on The Crunch this morning. All the best, Cam. It's been a pleasure talking to you. What an amazing interview. And now you've heard it, folks. Michael Bassett thinks that this government is the worst, not just in his living memory, but for all time in New Zealand politics. After promising so much under Jacinda Ardern, they've simply failed to deliver. If Michael Bassett says you're toast, then all that remains to find out is just how badly burned that toast gets. Don't forget to send comments on Michael Bassett's interview to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for... A reality check. Reality check. RCR. Reality check radio. Rational discussion. Common sense. And open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now it's time for Cam's Buddies, and this week we'll find out what they think about all the media hype over Nationals' tax cuts. Is there a fiscal hole or not? And does it matter? I regularly catch up with these guys, and they always give me their unvarnished views on anything, even if they disagree with me. My producer has them all lined up, ready to go, so let's hear what Cam's Buddies have to say about Nationals' fiscal hole tax plan. Good afternoon, Paul. Welcome to Cam's Buddies. Good afternoon, Cam. How are you going? Yeah, great. Look, um, there's been a lot of media the last week or so since National released their tax cuts plan, and the Labour Party and the media are all saying that there's this fiscal hole in their plan, and and they're not sure how 
national plans to pay for it. Do you think this matters, or have people just turned off to anything the Labour Party has to say and they don't care? Um, Genuinely, I'd say that the fiscal hole does matter, and that when people can't explain where the money's coming from, then people would get concerned. They would in normal business. Mm. But somehow in politics, when you can say, oh, we've found another 20 billion to do this with COVID or we've found another 10 billion to do this with COVID and and we just find money for all sorts of things and suddenly the government of the day has spent tens of billions more than they budgeted for and it doesn't seem to make a lot of difference to people um, with quantitative easing or if they can print money or they're doing these different things. Eventually you're sort of thinking, they seem to have lied a lot and no one really is concerned. Like they didn't seem concerned about um, we're going to build, going to grow a billion trees or not, mm. or we're going to build 10,000 houses a year yeah, or not. Or then when the Green Party is saying we're going to um, fix everybody's teeth and then extend lunches, by whatever, we'll just take more money off the rich. So with the government's military might, they will take money off one group of people and give it to another. And so worrying about a a hole in the budget when um, my understanding is when National, uh, National Need Government left office back in 2016, um, the amount of money that the deficit has increased by is way more substantial than the f- the physical can't find some money in the budget that they're talking about. So I think no one cares. It's just maybe a few in the in the is a beltway thing, but the the general citizen doesn't care. Isn't uh, the Labour Party running the risk that all they are talking about is Nationals' tax cuts, which makes voters think, well, where's your ones? I think what happens is in in sales, we never say what you're doing is wrong. We say what I'm doing is right. Mm. And in this case, what they're saying is I imagine Labour's sort of Um, must be being paid somehow by the National Party to do a lot of their promotion for them. Because if if you're always talking about what National's doing and instead of what Labor's going to do or doing, it strikes me as, you know, if all publicity is good publicity, the more the Labor politicians mention National, the better National would like it. Well, it's looking like that is happening in the polls. And, uh, you know, there's an unwritten rule of politics is, kind of really no rules anyway, but there is an unwritten rule that says that you never um, never talk about your opponent. Don't give them any oxygen. And it seems that all the Labour Party's doing is talking about what the National Party's doing. And I think you might be right there that uh, the National Party just rubbing their hands with glee that that their, their opponents are making rather amateur errors. I think there's truth to that statement. I look at... Um... Christopher Luxton, and I'm thinking, all he's saying is what John Key said in the past. We try and make as few mistakes as possible so that we can't get shown up as being idiots. We'll win. And um, I think um, 
Chippy's actually doing a good job of, um, of of helping National rather than saying what he's good at. Well, maybe we should just let them continue. But um, my my gut feel is that the general public just has got no interest whatsoever in anything that Christopher Hipkins has got to say or indeed anybody else from the Labour Party, and they'd really just rather they shut up, turned around and walked away. The people I'm talking to, I haven't heard someone say up until recently that they wanted to vote left, and I heard a youngster say today he didn't want to vote for Labour, he wanted to vote for Green, and that stunned me as well. But I haven't heard a, I haven't heard a person say, I'm, I'm going to vote for Labour, I think they've done a good job. I haven't heard that. That might be the circles I move in, but it... it um, some of the different places I go, like I'm on a school board with what was Decile One Children, different folk out there. I haven't heard one person say, I'm voting Labour. Yeah, it's very hard to find somebody now. And, and I imagine that in three weeks' time or four weeks' time, it'll be almost impossible to find anybody who voted for them. Everybody will be saying they voted for the winners. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> All right, uh, Paul, thank you for your contribution this week to Cam's Buddies, and I look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks, Cam. Take care. Bye for now. And now we have my next buddy, Marcus. Welcome to The Crunch. How you doing, mate? Fantastic, as always. I've got a bit of a, vexing, bit of a vexing question for you, Marcus. Uh, you've probably seen yep. in the media that Chris Hipkins and the Labour Party are all moaning uh, about Nationals' tax plan, tax cuts plan, saying there's a fiscal hole and their uh, lickspittles in the media have uh, come out and uh, and slammed it as well and continuing to chase Christopher Luxon all around the electorate as he goes and does his visits and asking him to clarify on an apparent fiscal hole in the tax plan. Do you think the fiscal hole is something that voters are concerned about, or is this just a media Labour Party beat up? I think the latter is probably the the, the case, and it's, it's funny they're talking about a hole in their budget. I mean, talk about sweating the small stuff. What, what is the apparent hole again? I can't remember one one oh, billion a, or something. No, no, no. It's about two hundred. It's about two hundred million or something. Two hundred million. So, so let let's have a little sit, sit back here and have a think. We're $120 billion in debt after the Labor government's been in um, power for the last well, six years or something like that. In the last two years, three years, they've just ramped up their spending and we're sweating over $200 million. Really? I mean, that, that, uh, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's like, and I mean, all they need to do is not have so many uh, so many parties or whatever and not spend $50,000 and shit like that. And, uh, well, excuse me. And it'll be it'll be all good again, you know? $200 million, really? Yeah, so... Like you in your business, your line of work, you're dealing with tradies, guys that are on the tools, you know, uh, working with roads, et cetera. Are you coming across yep. anybody who's sitting there saying, "Oh, look, I'm really concerned about this fiscal hole with National's tax plan," or are they actually saying, "I can't wait to get my tax cuts"? They're saying, "I can't wait to get rid of Labor." Actually, <laughs> <laughs> these would be traditional um... Labor voters, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, at the end of it all, it's just it's just a beat up. I mean, you've got to try and find some sort of um, foothold to try and get some sort of um, dirt on the opposition, and they're they're just going out trying to find everything they possibly can. And this is one thing that they've managed to um, sort of lay their lay their 
flag into and say, oh, this is what we're going to complain about. And like $200 million, okay. Even if it was a billion dollars, I wouldn't care. If it was $2 billion, I wouldn't care. Because, I mean, hey, at the end of the day, let's just print more money. Bugger it, you know. That's what they've been doing for the last six years anyway, is printing money. So, whatever. Couldn't they, make sense uh, to me. Couldn't they, you know, find $200 million worth of cuts of wasteful spending and pre-allocated spending that's never going to happen and fill that hole anyway? Well, they just need to get rid of some of the red tape, you know, some of the bureaucrats that they've employed over the last little while. Maybe a few less working groups that might help. Um, consultant fees and that sort of thing, $200 million, that's not much. It's gone. Maybe a good old-fashioned Roman-style decimation of the civil service might be in order. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean... At the end of it all, I just don't see any traction there whatsoever. And, I mean, Labor are desperate because they know that they're on a, a losing streak and they, they haven't got really much that, that they can hang their hat on. Um, they can't promise anything because we know how promises work with Labor. I mean, 100,000 homes, all that sort of thing, um, child poverty, it's just all its all rubbish and they're just looking for anything that they can grip onto and, and try and fame other people or whatever, you know? It seems to me that they're just splashing the cash everywhere, knowing that they actually don't have to honour any of it, and at the same time going deeply negative because they haven't got anything that they can celebrate as a win. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty much true for what's happened over the last little while is they're splashing cash because I think everyone knows that we're not paying this money back anyway, you know? It's all going to be coming down to the IMS or, or ancient history, um, CBDC is a new new inroad, and, and we're, we're all going to be um, slaves to the grind at any rate. So all of this money that they're spending is never going to be paid back. I mean, look at the USA. I, I don't know what they're in now, the $35 trillion in debt or something like that. No one's paying this stuff back. It's, um, it's all the spiral of death this this um, debt cycle that we've been in over the last little while and it's coming to fruition shortly and and I mean two hundred million dollars I just I, I find it hard to talk about to be frank. <laughs> well if only you if only you uh, some of the other things that they've promised for spending were only going to be two hundred million dollars. <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean yeah exactly. All right Special well spending really? yeah yeah all right, Marcus, thank you for uh, your feedback today on Cam's Buddies, and we'll talk next week. <laughs> no worries, mate. Welcome to Cam's Buddies this afternoon, Jimmy. G'day, Cameron. How are you today? Fantastic. Hey, look, uh, you've Great. probably seen in the media uh, and from Chris Hipkins the constant whining and carping about National's tax plan and a supposed fiscal hole that exists in the budget for those tax cuts that they're proposing. Do you think the public care about the whole, or uh, is it no. just a me just a media beat up in a Labour Party going negative? It is most definitely a, a media beat up and a negative Labour Party and New Zealanders don't care about the details. They just want a tax cut. I, in fact I know someone who is a Labour voter has switched to national because they're going to get $150 a week and it's going to make a big difference to them. Do you think that people so, are looking at this uh, news and thinking, oh, you know, I just wish that they'd just shut up and go away? 
And at the same time, they're thinking, you know what, a tax cut in my back pocket right now when petrol is over $3 a litre would go a long way to making life a whole lot easier. Oh, absolutely. I honestly absolutely do. The, the thing that really annoys me is the Labour Party shrilled saying that National's going to fund their tax, by, tax cuts by taking money off babies and taking money off the climate change um, commitments and all this. But it's like, it's, it's actually just leaving people with more of their own pay. It's not stealing it off anyone. It's just leaving the money that people will earn with them rather than... So I'm just so happy that there's big tax cuts on offer, personally. I think it's the best thing that could happen for this election. I find it... Um, crap that we can't pay for it. Yeah, I find yeah. it... Uh find it interesting that the media and the politicians talk about uh, national funding tax cuts when the reality is that they're actually taking less from us in the first place, not yeah. actually funding it. It's not spending as such. No, that's exactly the, that's what I was saying. It's they're stealing it off two-year-olds. Two it's not stealing it off anyone. It's just leaving people with more of their own pay, which is what they critically need. When petrol's over three dollars, well, I mean, so you go to we the want super- less government spending. Yeah, you go to the supermarket these days. You buy about four or five things, and there's a hundy gone just like that. <laughs> I know it's crazy. I mean, if anyone hasn't learned what inflation does, you know, I wonder if this has finally given Grant Robertson a lesson in inflation and how big government spending is less. More more dollars chasing less items, you know, creates this inflation problem, you know. So it's just big government. Just it happens every single time. But apparently each time wasn't done properly. Well, Even that's what they always say about right. socialism, isn't it? They they always say, Oh no, it wasn't done properly in in insert um shithole country basically, you know, Cuba, Venezuela, Russia. Any number of the Warsaw Pact, yeah, it hasn't been what done do you think properly. But... Is? He's a raving socialist. Yeah, it's exactly. Socialists, and look what problems we've got: inflation, big government, lawlessness. All, all the typical socialist problems are here. And if we keep going in the same direction, we'll get all the typical results. So that's why less taxes, less government is always the way forward in a democracy. Well, you know, the, tr- tr- the, tr- the trouble is, is the two main parties are pretty much saying the same thing. It's just uh, arguing over over the whys and the wherefores yeah. of how they're going to do it. I I know. I think we've talked about this a lot, but the sad thing about MMP is it failed to stop the first-past-the-post mentality of New Zealand. Oh, I'm just staggered by after 30 years um, that, uh, <laughs> that that people haven't worked out yet um, how MMP works. You know, it staggers me, absolutely staggers me. Well, it must come down to, yeah, I, I've, yeah, I just don't know why you wouldn't have three or four parties roughly equally as strong trying to make up different parliaments, you know. Well, that'd be it, ideal, it wouldn't work it? It just, doesn't, it just doesn't, doesn't happen in New Zealand for some reason. We just, we switch from red to blue every sort of six to six to nine years. And it's, yeah, well, well, hopefully we see some change. Well, hopefully we do. And in a few short weeks, we can have a celebratory CAMS Buddies where we can talk about what the results were. 
Well, the best thing about that election potentially is watching the shrieking on Twitter. <laughs> oh, X now. Yeah. yeah. Watching it, utter howling as the, the happening happens. Yeah, it's spectacular. Yeah. Anyway, thanks, Jimmy, for your comments, and we'll talk next week. Thanks, Cam. Thanks, bye. Welcome to Cam's Buddies for this afternoon. Jack, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Cam. I thought we'd uh, we'd touch on this vexed problem that the media and the Labour Party are, are making out is enormous problem, and that's there's a, apparently a fiscal hole of a couple of hundred million in National's tax plan for how they're going to fund tax cuts. Do you think this is just a media beat up, or is it something that the voters care deeply about? I think uh, the Labour Party are quite correct, but I also think it doesn't matter. It's all bollocks anyway. <laughs> what people are really interested in is law and order and racism and getting the hospitals right. Um, when you actually look at their tax plan, it's really nothing. Well, it, it is really nothing. It's a couple of hundred million that could be filled with uh, reallocating spending that uh, is, you know, silly or inappropriate or or ridiculous. You know, there's a couple of lazy billions sitting around uh, in the fund for, uh, you know, the light rail to the airport, which we've never had for six years, despite the promises. And I don't think we ever will, but I'm alive. Well, that's right. Well, you know, you're a little more advanced in the, in years than me. I mean, I know you helped Noah build the ark, um, but uh, you never know. They might build light rail to the uh, airport in, in the time frame that fits your uh, life expectancy, Jack. Yeah, yeah. Pigs might fly. <laughs> so you think it's all no big deal? You'd rather have the money in your pocket and let the politicians sort out how it's going to be funded? I've got really no time for any of the politicians really at the moment, particularly uh, Luxon. Unfortunately, um, the, the top guys in Labour are good, but they're surrounded by idiots and they're going to be voted out, not uh, because the other parties are better, but because they're worse. Um, yeah, well, and... earlier, yeah, earlier on in the show, um, I had Michael Bassett on and he was saying this is the worst government in his lifetime and he's 85 years old. And uh, and then I asked him and pressed him a bit more and said, you know, what about for the whole of New Zealand uh, elections? And he thought about it for a bit and then thought, no, you're absolutely right. It is the worst government ever. Yeah, it seems there's no depth anymore. Well, if it, there is depth, it's, it's like a, a car no park wants... puddle, isn't it? Yeah, it's just it just makes uh, a deeply cynical person like me even more cynical if that's possible. Well, I don't know if it is possible for you to be more cynical, Jack. I'd like to see that. It'd, it'd be worth videoing, <laughs> actually. <laughs> yeah. Look on the bright side. The weather's better. Um, I don't think the recession's anywhere near as bad as Mike Hoskin makes it out to be. Um, and as soon as the election's over, we'll get back to business. It'll be life as usual. Well, Mike Hosking's probably just upset because uh, it costs him three times as much to fill his Maserati up at the moment. I think he's got plenty. I don't think that'd bother him. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, Jack, thanks for that, and we'll talk next week on Cam's Buddies on the Crunch. Good afternoon, Miles. Welcome to Cam's Buddies. Good afternoon, Cam. How are you this afternoon? Fantastic. Now, Miles, you live deep within a dark red 
Labour Party electorate. Uh, your MP is yeah. Michael Wood. Have you seen what him and the other people in the Labour Party have been saying about National's tax cut plan and saying that there's a fiscal hole and that we should all be very worried about um, tech, uh, cuts to government spending to fund these tax cuts, and the media have jumped on board. Do you think there's something in this that the voters are concerned about this uh, apparent uh, fiscal hole, or are they just uh, ignoring anything that the Labour Party or the media have got to say? Well, I'm not sure about voters as a whole, but I'll tell you what, I'm not interested in the Labour Party's so-called fiscal hole. What I'm interested in is what happens in my wallet. And right at this moment in time, when petrol is $3 or more a litre, my goodness, cost of living is a big concern for me. So I think it's long overdue that something's done uh, for the hard-working people who pay tax. And I'm one of those people. And... I've seen a lot of um, things go up, like the minimum wage and and benefits and things like that. And what about me? My pay rises have been very small. And I'm thinking these tax cuts are good ideas. And this jibber-jabber from Hipkins in the media, I'm not worried about that. I think... Tax cuts are a good thing. You uh, you work in retail. Uh, wh- yeah. What are, what are you hearing from your client, your customers when they're coming through the door and talking about things? Uh, what's the feel, you know, in in a shop from the general public? Well, I think most people in the general public that I see coming through the door are really worried about the state of the country. They're really worried about the money that they're having to spend just to stay alive. Mortgage rates have gone up. You know, I don't think many of them would trust the Labor Party to run a cake stall at a school fair. They're just financially ignoramuses. And really, you know, the last three years, what have we got to show for it? What is the hard-working person got to show. I'll, I'll tell you what I've got to show. I've got a bigger mortgage bill. I've got a bigger fuel bill. And I'm not buying um, the small luxuries that I used to enjoy at the supermarket. Why? Because the price has gone through the roof. Yeah, you, you, you sort of get enough to fill one of those you know, pathetic little bags that they hand out now at the uh, at the supermarket. And and uh, shovel over $100, $150 for the privilege. Yeah, here's my message to the Labor Party. Keep going on about our Nationals tax poll because all I hear is jibber-jabber, jibber-jabber, tax cuts, National gives you tax cuts, jibber-jabber, jibber-jabber, jibber-jabber. <laughs> yep, I think that's pretty much the, the state of play and – you know, I've said this to many politicians. One day you'll see when people start crossing the road to avoid meeting you, you'll know that your days are numbered um, as a politician. And I think that's what they're experiencing now. And it's a rude shock for them, especially after, you know, the the majority rule that they've had since 2020. 
and uh, they've managed to squander a majority, uh, you know, in three short years. Uh, it's it, well, it's it's unprecedented. Well, that's not the only thing. It is unprecedented, and it's not the only thing they've squandered. And you know, this is why people are so interested in tax cuts. They've seen this Labor government throw money around like it's going out of fashion. But I'll tell you something: very few of the hard-working middle class people that I know have been um, recipients of um, government largesse, and very few of them would want to be. They want to stand on their own two feet. They want to be rewarded for the work they do. And, you know, we hear a lot about um, tax bracket creep. That's a thing. That's a real thing. And people are being taxed at rates that are unheard of simply because of the tax bracket creep. And when we can get more money back in our own pocket, the jabberwocky and the jibber-jabber that Labor talk is meaningless. I want to see more money in my pocket because I'll tell you one thing, Cam. Mm. I know I can spend it a darn sight better than the government can. Well, you certainly wouldn't be funding, um, you know, deadbeats and and drop kicks out there that are, um, you know, receiving, you know, actually far more money for doing nothing than people who some people who are working very very hard. Well, for a start, you know. I've got to pay bills uh, for my kids' education. And, you know, that to me is very important. Um, where's that money coming from? I've got to pay, um, you know, school fees. I've got to pay extra bills for uh, the kids' extra curricular activities. I mean, these are the things that matter to me. And I want to be able to be the master of my own destiny. I want to be able to work hard and I want to be fairly recompensed for the work, and I don't want a grasping government to stick its hand in my pay packet. And the, the more pay that I can keep, the better. This All this jibber-jabber about a fiscal hole is just that. People will actually respond better to pay cuts. People can look after their money better than the government, and I think that's a really good thing, and I think National um, deserve a pat on the back for that. And, you know, the media and Labor, well, you know, do we really believe anything they say after the last six years? I don't think anybody trusts them anymore. I don't think they do either. It's like I said, I wouldn't trust that lot to run a cake stand at a school fair. They just haven't got the financial nails to do it. Someone uh, said uh, something far worse the other day. I mean, they said they, they wouldn't be able to run a, f- a fried bread stall at a farmer's market. Yeah. Well, anything to do with money, it's all seemed to slip through their fingers in the last um, six years. And what have we got to um, show for it? Have we got shiny, fresh hospitals? No. If you look at the only shiny, fresh hospital they're trying to build in Dunedin, and it's being cut back, and as soon it'll be an A&E clinic. I mean, have we got any infrastructure? Um, ooh, no. Um, have we got potholes in our roads? Oh, yeah, that'd be a yes. I mean, where's all this money gone? We've, we've got no infrastructure. We've got nothing to show for, I think, billions that have been spent. And it's frivolous spending, and I can't believe it. It makes me angry because I'm sure as hell 
struggling at the moment and I need this tax cut. I need it because how else are we going to survive this uh, incredible increases in our cost of living? And that's brought about by Labor. Labor is directly to blame for the cost of living crisis. Well, they all think that it's um, Vladimir Putin's fault for um, invading Ukraine. Yeah, perhaps they should look at who's been turning on the printing presses in New Zealand and um, the, the amount of money that they've flooded into the market causing inflation. Vladimir Putin has got nothing to do with the New Zealand cost of living crisis. He may, he may not be the best man in the world, but he ain't got nothing to do with the cost of living crisis in New Zealand. Yeah, well, you know, Margaret Thatcher once said the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money to spend, and that was never truer than it is today. Yep, and boy, has this government spent a lot of my money, and I think that I can be a better guardian of my own money. I like the idea of the tax cuts. I think that this whole fiscal hole is jabberwocky and the media uh, are just a, a part of the Labour Party propaganda arm at the moment and I don't think they can be believed in in any aspect of what they say. Well, thank you once again, Miles, for your feedback on Cam's Buddies and I look forward to talking to you next week. Yeah, look, it'll be great and um, let's see how many times... Um, Labor uh, mention um, tax cuts because I tell you what, it's great advertising for National and every time I hear it, I just think, oh, yeah, there's only one party doing that. Exactly. There is only one party doing that. All right. Time to go now. I've okay. Got to thank finish you. Up the show. Thank you. Gee whiz, my buddies can be brutal at times, but that's why I love their thoughts. They never hold back and then unafraid to challenge me or my thinking. There are many, many times where my views and reckons have been formed by these free and frank discussions. Let us know what you think of Cam's Buddies by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. for the mailbag and this week we have less than we had the week before and no hate mail i'm astonished i've been trying really hard to get you all riled up so that you can send me hate mail and i've got nothing 
Anyway, let's kick into it. Uh, we've got multiple texts from Jan. Um, they go, hi, Cam. What are we going to do about the election cheating from Jacinda Ardern? How can we stop the interference? Well, Jacinda Ardern's gone, and I'm not sure that there was any interference uh, in the election cheating or anything like that. The country needs to vote on strong leaders that cannot be controlled. Vote Winston Peters who care for the people. And let's support the farmers and give them the money. They can rule our country. We don't need a big government if all of us can live happily together in Wellington. A whole lot of strangers coming out of nowhere. Why do we need a government? Freedom Village once more. We are the people. Had a look at the app. It's great. Works well. Thanks. God bless. Well, that's, thanks for all of those, Jan. Bromwyn says, Cam's full show is one of my must-listens each week. And on the Muriel Newman interview, Cam, very informative talk with Muriel. We are faced with the most important election in our country's history. If we get it wrong, we'll be well and truly in the proverbial. That was anonymous. Chris says, hi, Cam. What about the police backing the Maori at protests over law-abiding people going about their democratic rights? Watching women being assaulted and turning the other way, who is directing the police? Sarah says, my first vote was in the MMP referendum. It was an entire setup. So many taxpayers' dollars were spent on the dogmatic preaching that MMP was the only sensible option. Thinking back, it was somewhat reminiscent of government COVID propaganda. The public average Joe could never have come to the alternative an alternate conclusion, I voted STV. I was a kid, but still stand by that choice. That was from Sarah. Anonymous says, hi, Cam, great interview, but you stated we do not have another Muldoon Kirk, etc. You seem to forget we had Ardern even more ruthless. Your Nazi Jewish summary was spot on. How close were the pure bloods from being locked up? Mike says, hi, Cam, thank you for getting back on track. With that interview with Muriel Newman, this is the intelligent conversation that we need at this time to educate and make us think about voting with a specific goal and strategy to get the result we want. The last time I heard you, you were winding us up and looking for people to be pissed off with your guest, and it worked. But it also confused people and turned a few off, and that is detrimental to what we need at this time in our political history. The more interviews with people like Muriel will only help people think and make an informed decision. Uh, Mike says, hi, Cam. I've just been listening to your interview with Muriel Newman again and have picked up what I believe may be a mistake by you and Muriel. If I'm wrong, please let me know. I read a book called Forbidden Freedom, and in that the author brings a lot of verified evidence that shows there were many people, over 100,000, living in the North Island peacefully until Maori arrived. I spent a long time checking out what that he was saying was right, and it was all backed up with science and evidence. There was a part where even Maori talk about bones of ancestors that were dug up, and when asked what they wanted to do with these bones, Maori said they were not their ancestors, so do what you want with them. Please, if you believe this is wrong, let me know and show me why. There are so many events and so much evidence to prove that Maori were not the first settlers. Monica Matamua is still alive and her people can prove that they were first and go back 68 generations. I don't know what I 
I don't know if you have read it, but have a read, Forbidden History by John D. Eldworth. Uh, Chris says from fa- on Facebook, a brilliant interview. Now comments about Gilda Kirkpatrick's interview. Great show, Cam, and your guests, especially hearing Gilda's perspective. It was very re- interesting, truly encouraging, and a breath of fresh air from James. Anonymous says, excellent interview with Gilda. Thanks, Cam. Love you all on RCR. Blessings. Anonymous says, Gilda, what a what a woman, brilliant. And another anonymous comment, Gilda Kirkpatrick on the Crunch expressed so many beautiful values. I just have to say thank you for being so honest and sharing. Elizabeth says on from Facebook, loved this interview with Gilda. And Michael says, another great informative interview. New Zealand needs more immigrants like Gilda. You're correct in saying she is more like a New Zealander than many born here New Zealanders. Somebody commented on past interviews, especially about the Democratic Alliance, says, why don't they join the umbrella group? Well, the Democratic Alliance was set up as an umbrella group and not an actual party, so they couldn't do that. And just letting you know, too, that a soundbite from my interview with Masako Ganaha has had over 91.8 thousand views on X, formerly known as Twitter. So check out our social media stuff and comment there as well and retweet, share, and like all of our uh, clips that we put up for you. And that's the mailbag for this week. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR. Right, that's it for the crunch this week. We are getting to the pointy end of the election campaign, and this is where the rubber meets the road, where reality starts biting hard. The Labour Party has seen seven polls in 10 days tear their support apart. It's all over for them now, as the polls reinforce voters' gut feelings, and no one likes backing a loser. That's why you're seeing an increasingly desperate and nasty Labour Party going deeply negative like their poll ratings. With just three weeks to go and just one week until early voting begins, it's vitally important that you keep yourself well informed. And that's why we are here at Reality Check Radio to give you both sides of any story or issue, and it's a job we all love doing. Take note of what Michael Bassett has said and vote to rid yourself of the worst government in New Zealand's political history. It's been a real pleasure having you all back this week. I'm loving all your feedback, really enjoying talking to so many people, sharing their thoughts on politics, life, and everything in between. But there's plenty more in this election campaign that we need to crunch into. So a big shout out to all of you. Thank you for listening and having faith in me as we continue to explore this most beautiful game of politics. Don't forget email suggestions to inbox at realitycheck.radio for people for me to interview. Let's make this show the best political show in New Zealand. Stay tuned for a breakfast show repeat coming up with features including money talks with my buddy Farzan Irani and Perigo's perspective with the one and only Lindsay Perigo. I'm looking forward to having you join me again next Thursday at 4pm for The Crunch with Cam Slater. You've been listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. 
Remember, you can check out the replays for today's show on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. for more with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio.